Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the things that I learned being in Japan for the 2019 World Cup, right, is how hard it is to be a vegetarian there. It's really, really difficult. I mean, you didn't even achieve it, did you? Not really. So I, I planned to stop eating fish sometime before the World Cup, and I decided to wait until after I'd gone to Japan, just so I had a safety option. <laughs> and I somehow got away with it. But yeah, this was the nightmare thing. It's like basically everything you order, even things that are labeled vegetarian option, have meat in them. Yeah. Like I once ordered just scrambled egg on toast, and they not just had ham in the eggs like just mixed into the scrambled eggs which is revolting they also had it in the bread that's mental it was absolutely mad as somebody Uh, who eats a lot of meat and enjoys eating a lot of meat ham inside bread feels like a stretch too far yeah the other like absolutely nightmare thing i had it's like so as i said like i kept eating fish and i was able to eat sushi and so on it was just all grand and there are like seafood-based ramens, which is grand, which is great. One thing I was not expecting to find in virtually every dish, which is a like Japanese delicacy that I didn't realise I'd never heard about before, but apparently started around the time of this World Cup, around 2007, and has kind of grown into like a national almost obsession. And I mm-hmm. kind of was reminded of it watching this game, Canada versus Japan, back, because the thing that you now find in almost every single dish in Japan is Ryan Smith's ribs, yeah, there's a lot of those have been taken out. Like he has, and this is something we've not really talked about much on the podcast. So we've, mm. we've covered him in two different World Cups, mm. but he once set a world record for the most amount of ribs that any human beings ever had. Um, yeah. For some reason has like dozens and dozens of ribs or had, sorry, before this game started. It's harvesting. He's like the pig in Oakshire. Like he has been bred to just have lots of ribs so that people can eat them. Because tell you what, there's like eight points in this game where someone just eats Ryan Smith's limbs. Libs. That too. Libs. Ribs. Libs. Libs, yes. Most of the time, it is Harry Mikairi, the Japanese six, is Mm. like going up and killing him. He like... He is having the absolute dream day for a number six, just going after the number 10. Like, the coach has given him, John Cohen has given him the call, like, by the way, you're just going to hunt down 10 all day. He's like, say no more. And literally, as soon as he's out from a scrum or line out, he's in the 10 position going, I don't care whether you have the ball, you're sitting on your ass in a minute. And I love it. So, I hope Makiri, the Japanese number six, went on to become coach of the Japanese sevens team. I believe he was until quite recently, actually. And I wonder if that was just because that's the one area of rugby where Canada is still a force. Yeah, maybe. It it gives us more chance to just eat (laughs) Canadian fly halves. Yeah, yeah. I want to taste Nate Hirayama from the sidelines. I want to knock chumps off so I can bite them. He has experience of being both a 6 and a 10, clearly. Granted, all of the experience of being a 10 is defensive, but, you know. As a fan of rugby, I love it. As a fly half, I hate it. Or former you fly, half. fly half. You uh, a former fly half. Identified as a fly half. Yes. Outstanding. 
Okay, so the game today is Canada 12, Japan 12. One of, I think, the most notable games of this World Cup. It has one of the most talked about finales of this World Cup. It's something we talked about this in the office a while back when I was doing something for a upcoming video on Portugal. This may come up. That's going to be a like good video. Iconic moments in the World Cup that aren't necessarily great, right? Mm. So Joe Nalomu scoring four tries against England is a great moment. Johnny Wilkinson's yes. drop goal is a great moment. Japan his drop goal against Samoa, play, I wouldn't say is that great a moment. Oh, his, yeah. The Japan try against South Africa in that final play, Heskiff's try, is a great moment, right? Yes. However, I think there's a difference in these like different kind of iconic moments where you're like, they are fan favorite moments. They are kind of moments that stand out at the time. So I think in that you have what oh, I, talking I know what you're about to talk about early in this tournament. You have the kind of, the, you know, the Rui Cordero's try from earlier in this year. Yes. You I'm, have Superboot in 1987. Superboot, yes. In general, I think. I feel like Valentin Popolan's name's going to come up here at the time well, he accidentally the thing, got a try. Right? And the best thing about having this voice in rugby now is every now and again, I feel like we get to like try and force things into this canon. Like I'm desperately trying to force Fiji versus Namibia into this from 2011. I'm desperately, desperately trying to force Valentine Popolan's accidental try into there (laughs) from 2015. Wait until we get to that games episode. Oh, mate. Wait until we get to Romania, Italy from 2015. Mate. What a game um, it is as well. Like not just the Larry's try, try in 2015. Yeah. I think is another one. What else? There's a lot we... of them. There's well, a lot I mean, of them. So early in this World Cup, we had Georgie Skinnin scoring against Ireland. Those kind of moments where like a smaller nation steps up and is phenomenal and just kind of really stands out. And they don't lead to a team becoming one of the greatest ever. They don't lead to one of the best results ever. But they just like stand up and stand out as as small moments that make a World Cup worthwhile. And it's why I'm so excited about the next one. Because these moments happen all the time where the great moments happen maybe once or twice every World Cup. Like Colby was the one great moment from the last World Cup, right? But you had Uruguay and you had all kinds of stuff kind of scattered throughout, which were just like enormous fun. I totally back that. And this very much fits into that category. Absolutely. And the thing is, we we haven't addressed this even off camera, but this is, I would say, an episode that we've both been looking forward to for a long time. Probably Absolutely. since we did the 2011 series and we did the adjacent yes. results to this. I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but I said just there that you and I both are really, really you know, mm. excited to do this. But before we talk about that, who are you? I'm Stad Shabandelamas in Bordeaux. Oh, are you now? And who That's are you? so interesting. I'm the number 33,810. Wow, we go together incredibly well. We do, we do. In particular on the 21st of September 2007, we belong together with this game. Yes. It's, it's written in the stars. Yes. I was going to say I am Jonathan Kaplan from South Africa, but that's just not a good... No, uh, not a good place to lean Not a good bit, Um, no. Decided we're going to ignore Jonathan Kaplan for this game. Okay, Um, okay. What about when we get to Dick of the Day? (laughs) I mean, we can have that conversation when we get there. I am going to jump right ahead, right, and say Mm -hmm. this. I think the last 10 minutes of this game are up there as the best rugby we've covered on this podcast, end of. It's so so good i feel it like more than lives up to the hype we are going to skim the first half of this yes. and then really dive deep on the second half so my opinion on this game and i have this before starting to watch it in fact, before i even get into that have you seen this game before in full i've seen the last 10 minutes 
Okay, I'd seen the last 10 minutes, but not for... Oh, no. Probably about 10 years. I don't yeah, think I've seen this yeah, game this likewise. Full. I've never seen this game in full before. No, me neither. And so this was such an exciting experience to finally get to do this, because to the rugby nerd, this is a huge game. And my kind of hot take on this is, this is a quarterfinal. Yeah. Like, this is a bonus knockout game. I have so scarcely, in all the time we've covered this podcast, seen two such evenly matched teams. I think... France-Australia in 1987 is kind of the closest yes. comparison I can draw to this, where these two teams are so evenly matched for different reasons. And it just feels like this game could have been 200 minutes long and it eventually would have ended up as a draw, you know? Yeah. And my big hot take on this is this should have gone to extra time. I know that it's not in the rules. <laughs> I know it's a pool game, but they should have just gone. You know what, lads? Both of these teams are out of the tournament. This is going to have no bearing on the rest of the pool. Let's just agree that if we play 20 minutes, we will find a winner just out of sheer curiosity, even if we don't mark it down officially on the scoreboard. They should have televised an extra 20 minutes of these lads going at each other so we eventually found a winner. Do you agree with me? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent on board. So to the credit of the broadcast team, right? They are superb in this game. I think it's very, very good. They treat it as the huge occasion that it is for these two teams. They say before the game, this is both of these teams World Cup final. And I a hundred percent wholeheartedly back that. It is. It is. Both of these teams have gone in knowing that they had a chance against Fiji, but really Australia and Wales were Hail Marys, and this was the big game they were building towards. Yes. It's Japan's last game. Canada have one last game against Australia after this, but, you know, I think they're kind of writing that off. They've got a short turnaround. That's future Canada's yeah. problem. Exactly. They go on to change the team quite a lot. They put Mike Pike at yeah. 13, for crying out loud. Oh, my God, I can't um, wait to see that. So, you mate, know, it's like, they fully, they absolutely stack. Both of these starting lineups are... Just stacked These with really, really big names. Are the 15 best rugby players in Canada versus the 15 best rugby players in Japan. There's Absolutely. no other kind of tactical whatever about this. They've just gone for the best team they can possibly select. Yeah. And like both of them have strong benches as well, who do genuinely yeah. make impact, which is what makes yeah. this such an exciting game. As It does genuinely, it has from start to finish the feel of a knockout game that yeah. everything, and I said this about the latter games in 87, but like, you get that you finally get the feeling with these two teams in particular. We've had it before with Canada, but not necessarily with Japan. That mm. every pass matters, every tackle matters, every dropped ball matters, every set piece, whatever, eventually will lead to something. And you actually get that sense from this entire game that everything that either team does has a, a consequence. And it sounds stupid yeah. because it's a game of rugby and that's just the way it works. But there is so much weight on every passage of play here. And that's why it feels like a knockout game. And I'm going to treat it as such. The game it reminds me of most is actually another game that fits into that iconic category, which is Argentina versus Scotland from 2011. Mm, we covered yeah. on the podcast with Graham Love of being wonderful on Twitter and yes. having an incredible beard. So we did a very evenly game matched game. Yeah, impossibly evenly matched. And it was one of those where like, as you said, this game could have gone on forever and it would have been a draw. That game could have gone on forever and it would have been decided by one point. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that game would have gone on forever. And no matter what, it would have been decided by Dan Parks missing a kick. Yes. And Philippe Cotter playing with being offside. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that game <laughs> could have gone on forever and it would have, like, if that game was seven hours long, it probably would have finished about 28 to 27. Yeah. It was just, it was so evenly matched. Both teams are going back and forth. And territory seemed to become irrelevant in that game. 
because both teams were getting into the opposition half and then clearing the ball and surviving these attacks. And it was this constant kind of fretting nerves mm. feeling. And this game's really similar in that there's so much time spent in either 22 and looking for the kind of killer pass and looking for the killer blow and looking for that final inch to get them over the line. And it's not quite coming all the time, but the tension is there the whole way through. Yeah. There's rarely yeah. a moment in this game. We talked about the first half not being perhaps as strong as the second half, but the first half is still on a knife edge and constantly mm. tense and exciting and yeah. just huge in drama and occasion. Yeah, for sure. And we've talked about what the teams are like, but mm. the most important member of the Canadian team, I would say, is I would play for Rick Suggett all day. <laughs> he, yes. He is fantastic. The head coach for Canada. We hyped him up before with Luke Upton when we covered the Wales game, mm. how passionate he was from the stands. And like his pre-match interview that he does he's so passionate about this group of players and what Mm. they stand for and the style of play and just like you would do absolutely anything for him if he was your coach yeah i just love him i mean rick Suggett. also like the incredible thing is he's one of the most canadian and proudly canadian people you ever Mm. find especially in rugby to the point that obviously you know he sadly passed away a few years ago but in his period as a coach which ranged 2004 to his death in 2017 that's a what 13 year coaching career in that time he coached all four canadian national teams the men's the women the men's sevens the women's sevens clearly has was... such passion for canadian rugby yeah and i bet all of those teams were in a sense successful in the warren gatlin sense of overachieving successful yeah which is what this canada team were they were scrappy underdogs who loved to go toe-to-toe with the big ones they did that against wales and here there's so many points where you feel like canada could easily dip and be down and out and mm. yet they have such a great game. And well, he was such a kind of force in Canada women becoming the presence they still are in the women's really? international game. In that he was, you know, the coach that kind of led them to that first kind of rise and that first semi-professionalizing, even if they weren't receiving money and receiving payments, of setting up their program so that it was on a par with the men's program because he really cared in it and believed in it, even in 2004 which is a whole different era. Like Sarah Hunter only had 60 caps then. (laughs) It was like a completely different era of women's rugby Um, to even 2010, you know, like at that point, right. We were 15 years into women's international rugby, more or less. Certainly as there being, you know, world cup and being a kind of world stage you could compete on. And yet he really believed in it and really pushed them to be on the same platform as the men, or at least as close to as they get, which they're still there at the minute, you know, and you're hoping the union can, manage what the legacy that he set and then when he moved over to coach the men a couple of years later brought a real sense that actually nothing is impossible for this canadian team yeah he's the kind of coach they desperately need at the minute there's no substitute for passion is there no no there's really not in something like coaching like if you again if you're a group of players and you have a guy in charge especially at international level who you know would do anything for you mm. then you're going to die for that guy you know and if you've got that guy and he's emotionally articulate as Suggett was and he understands the players and he's empathetic and he knows to surround himself with smart assistant coaches to back up his weaknesses genuinely what more can you ever ask for yeah what more can you want I bloody love this Canada team and we talked before in a previous episode about how much we miss Canada Um, and I think he is and I'd never heard of him before doing this podcast, mm. but I just think he really epitomises what I love about Canadian rugby when it's at its peak. Yeah. 
you know, th- there are players in this team who also speak to that. Like Morgan Williams, who's the captain, is a brilliant ambassador for Canadian rugby. DTH fans and Murphy very much the same. James Pritchard is probably the top of the Speaks list in, in terms yeah. of that. Yeah. Adam Kleberger comes in at seven. Yeah. Kleberger and Carpenter, both kind of legends yeah. who played for a really long time. Rod Snow. Rod, Snow, Rod Goddamn Snow. Yeah. Like, what a brilliant team they've put together there. Full yeah. of Canadian rugby legends. This is such a strong team. And like Spicer and Culpin in the centres. I'd never heard of either of them before doing this. And I'm such a fan of both of them, particularly Culpin. Yeah, I was going to say David Spicer's really won me round over this tournament. Not that yeah. I didn't like him at the start, but just like he's now the sort of player I'm like, no, but he's really, really solid player. Like yeah. we've got a bit we'll sometimes do where we just mention something, we go, good player. Good player. And that's it. Dave Spicer, good player. Good player. Good player. Like really Big solid, really reliable, defensively sublime. Went on to play in the Pro Day off the back of this and he deserved Classic. a better reward than that. Yeah. Well, no, no sorry, fantastic. he played in the team that just promoted from the Pro Day to okay. the top 14. So he did get, you know, he did get some time in the top leagues. On the bench, they also had the Pletch Twins and Justin Mentecoca. Or... Good players who had, you know, very long Canadian careers. Justin Mentecoca, it's a shame we're not really seeing much of him in the World Cups that we've covered mm. because he was a really, really good winger, both 15s and 7s, had a lot of gas. And it was good to see him get on in this game. But yeah, we're not seeing much of him. No, we haven't, which is a shame. As you said, he had a really long, varied career for Canada. Went until, I think, surprisingly recently. Well, I mean, no, I think he played for far longer than you'd have expected him to and just hung around a long time. But yeah, really good, powerful winger was a huge part of the qualifying campaign for this World Cup as well for them. Scored a couple in their game against the USA and then didn't quite click in with the... Largely thanks to DTH van der Merwe coming along right at the sure. right time. Sure. And it's difficult to get in the team for Pike and Pritchard, who are both he's so a good boy, established in... <laughs> he's a good boy. <laughs> I forgot about that. To look at that like Canadian team, it is the strongest mm. team they can put out. It is one of the strongest Canadian teams we've seen in the professional era. I think it's this yeah. in 2011 where they have like really the greatest Canadian team since they got to the quarterfinals in 1991 under Archeron and so on, which is another, again, iconic moment. Archeron yeah. scoring against Romania to put them in the quarterfinals and then scoring against the All Blacks in that quarterfinal. Excited to do that when we get to tonight. That'll be good. Jumping ahead of ourselves. But we have Mike Pike keeps his place at fullback. He's a good boy, Mike Pike. Good boy. He is a truly remarkable human being. He remains it. We talked about him a lot on the last one. You know, the first Canadian to ever become a professional Australian rules player. You know, multi-sport athletes that played for Canada in, well, most notably in rugby union, but also all over the place. And just like an absolutely massive human who has this kind of like weird aura. I don't know. Like I get the vibe of Mike Pike where like, he could very easily live in the woods. <laughs> I don't quite know what you mean, but... No, but you get it, don't you? Yeah, I get it. I get it. He's a good boy. Like, he lives in the woods, and he's, like, built his own house out of trees and mm. just bits his fan around. And sure. he's, like, slowly built up this community, and he's got, like, 12 wives and 11 husbands, and all of them <laughs> love him. And he's a qualified electrician, but hasn't used electricity in eight years. Look, he's got if... this like weird enigma quality to him. If you asked me to pick which member of the Canadian backline had all of those attributes you just described, I would have said David Spicer, followed by Mike Pike. Yeah, David Spicer seems like he could have three wives, but I'm one husband. They're all totally fine with it. Yeah, exactly. Like it's all very mutual. Like yeah. everyone's into everyone. It's like a big, like, Frupple, whatever a frupple is for like six people. Quadruple. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, like um, the sixth version of that. Yeah. Couple to the power um, of six. Then you've got James Pritchard as the very sensible old man on the wing. Yeah, from Bedford. Yeah. They're very keen to I bring up that he's born in Australia, which I didn't I didn't realize. know he was born in Australia until yeah. this game. And boy, did I find that out. Yeah, they made that point quite a lot of times. Should we look at Japan? Yeah. Great team they put out as well. The, the back line, it's a bit of a shame that they're still hamstrung at 10 by injury. So yeah. uh, Kosayono is injured. It's- they said they have three injured fly halves ahead of this game. So they have to keep Robbins still at 10, which mm. Robbins, we've said this a million times, He's been playing well as a rugby player until he has to do something fly-halfy. Until he has to be a fly-half, he's playing pretty well, you know? And very much still the case in this game. Yeah, he's a great player, not really a 10. It's Um, such a shame that on this podcast we will not really cover him at his best, playing in his normal position, you know, other than that one game in 2011. Iji Ando, so you have a Japanese fly-half who's injured. Right, okay. It's a it's a good backline they put out outside him. Like they've got they move Christian Lomani to the wing because why on earth would you play him at fullback? So they've got him and Kazuki Endo. It's mental that they've not looked at Hirotoki Onazawa's form here and thought he deserves a start. Yeah, but also I think it's a very it's the thing John Kerwin was going for, and the way rugby was sort of moving at the time, of really liking big wingers. So mm. he goes for two really powerful runners. Like Endo isn't the biggest guy, but like he's incredibly powerful. He's yeah, not small he a punch, by any he? stretch. But and also, like, I suppose he's quite a similar winger to Onazawa in that mm. he's one of those who is all about acceleration and counter attack. And like, if you give them wide open space, they will both, you know, take opportunities. They're like sevens wingers, the pair of them, well, because they are. Yeah. But whereas yeah. Christine Lomanu is a big lad with a big boot who will hit. Yep. So it's probably yep. important to get a bit of both on the pitch. Oh, it's, yeah, it's probably good for the balance. And Onazawa was a good impact player to have to bring on, actually. He certainly is. Deceptively so. It justifies it. Because I don't think he's, as a kind of finishing winger, you don't think of those as being natural impact players. But actually yeah. him having that level of extra pace, because he is notably quicker than everyone in either back line. Yeah. 100%. Being able to bring that on does change things. Definitely, definitely. Uh, the star name as well. As well, I mean, Goaruga is a player that I've really, really Wait. grown... Can we have a word for like, Goa He's brilliant, isn't he? I, I mean, he plays really well I, in this game. I instantly love him because he is <laughs> called Go Aruga. <laughs> it's a fullback like, called Go Aruga. His first name is Go, like the <laughs> word Go, and his surname is Aruga, which is like the sound that a cartoon wolf makes when it sees a sexy lady wolf taking off its <laughs> bikini. It's like Aruga. <laughs> And I am hugely, hugely into that energy for a Japanese fullback. Like, Literally, it couldn't be any other person. type of rugby player, could it? No, other than the exactly. Japanese the fullback. best kind of rugby player that could be called Goaruga is a Japanese fullback who loves a counter-attack Do you think and sometimes it... just randomly hoofing it in the air. Do you think it ever happens where like somebody comes along to a rugby club and the coach looks at their name, goes, Goaruga, okay, I'm going to teach you all the skills to be a fullback rather than just yeah. picking your position based on your actual skill set that you have. But you have the energy, Goaruga, of a fullback. That's the thing. Riha Yamanaka has the energy as well. Yeah. Like, his first name is fine, but Yamanaka feels like the name that a fullback of his style should have. Yamanaka's a manga character. We've established exactly. this. But yeah, and Go Aruga is like his predecessor. Yeah. yeah. He's really, really good in this game. I think he has a He's fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant and I loved game. watching him play. I think like, more than being good, he's fun. 
Yes. I think the star of this Japanese backline is Shitaro Anishi at 12. Yes. We both, I think every single game, we, uh, we both have like man crushes developing on Anishi. Because I think he's the sort of player that we both quite like. That he's a proper ball player. You do wonder if he could have slotted in at 10. But proper ball player, as can kick off both feet, offloads really nicely. is just brilliant. Yeah, kind of almost ahead of his time. Like you kind of wish he'd come for a bit later, mm. so that he could have been used by an Eddie Jones or Jamie Joseph type coach for sure. Because uh, he had all the skills that they would have adored. Paved you the way t- to the Tatakawas and the Nakamura's of the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Yuta Imamura as well. Big fan of. Great player. Big fan yeah. of him. Think I think he plays absolutely fantastically. Yeah. We've eulogised a little bit about the pack throughout this tournament. Tomokazu mm. Soma is becoming a favourite, I think. He's just a really cuddly, tired prop, and I'm, I always yep. have time for those in World Cups. Soma, I like, because when you look at his face, right, it doesn't move very far, but he can do a lot of just, like, his eyebrows moving. He's like <laughs> Gromit. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, his face doesn't move much because he's just, like, it's a solid, like, square block. Like, he's like a question mark block in Mario-shaped head. You don't but, fuck about, Soma. No, but then, like, he'll move an, an eyebrow upwards and he'll be like, oh, he's delighted, look at him, bless <laughs> him. Or, like, one will, like, quiver a bit and you're like, oh, he's really sad when the rest of his face hasn't moved at all. <laughs> ono and Thompson is, like, a world-class yes. second-row combo that... That we probably need a wanking over Luke Thompson jar that we go for, but yeah. like he definitely helps contribute it because he's unbelievably good in this game once again. And Ono, they complement each other so so well. And mm. the thing is, I expected going into this tournament watching Japan, Luke Thompson being. I said it before. I think he's probably the most underrated rugby player of all time. He's one of the best second rows yeah, to ever play the game. We've done this. Here's enough, the thing, right? But... We have said he's the most underrated player of the last twenty years. So many times this podcast, he's now overrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I was expecting it would be like I would watch this tournament and go, "Oh, I can see how he becomes the player he does." Mm. But no, he was always that good. Yeah, that's what Same surprised in me. Twenty nineteen, I thought he'd be past his best, but like he was a phenomenal player back then, and he was still just as good. Yeah. He was still just effortlessly as good as he's ever been. Chris. What a player, man. Quick mention for a couple of lads on the bench. One of them being Ryo Yamamura, the loose head prop, who apparently was a former semi-pro sumo wrestler. Sumo wrestler, or, yeah. Yeah. I believe. Uh, which is pretty mental, having one of those come off the bench if you're Dan Pletch and that's your opposite number. But I think there was a big movement to try and get more sumo wrestlers into rugby Why wouldn't um, you? into scrummaging yeah exactly and i think that's that's gone back again but they've now gone for universe like below university level like mm. schoolboy levels and you have to convert people early just like i don't know if you saw stuff about michael leach in mongolia uh, it rings a bell so michael leach noticed that there's now a huge number of mongolian sumo wrestlers who are hugely successful like right. the last like eight of like the sumo wrestling national championships last few years has had at least like three or four Mongolians in every year for like a decade or something. And Leach basically went, wait a second. It's a transferable skill set between, you know, parts of rugby and sumo wrestling. And we set up the first rugby academy in Mongolia. So Michael Leach went Leech over and set this the up. Job. He's great. And so like he managed to get a couple of Japanese clubs in on it and like, They've all helped contribute to this Mongolian rugby academy. And they had the first player came through and played in the top league this year. Wow. Um, Japan rugby League One. It was a flanker. 
they were looking for props basically but they had this one flanker come through who was just like incredible over the ball because you just can't shift him in the same way incredible Um, man leech is so far from done with his positive contributions to the japanese rugby union isn't he so far from done this is the thing right we look at the absolute state of the way world rugby is treating tier two nations at the minute and we've had the news in the last weeks as this podcast comes out far more recently as we're recording this of the world league supposedly having gone through and with a really hard set no promotion relegation for the first few years so it looks like between 2026 and 2030 there will be no games between tier one and tier two nations outside of world cups which is utter utter bullshit One of the most anti-rugby backwards decisions World Rugby's made in a long time, and they've made quite a few of them. They make them um, daily. Which that will do so much to harm the growth of the sport worldwide. Yeah. And all it'll do is it will, in the countries in which rugby is already financially stable-ish, it will be, I don't even think it'll like increase interest at all. No, I don't I, think I can't like, see any positives with it. Like, I don't think you're going to sell more tickets for a game at Twickenham against South Africa. I don't think you'll sell more tickets. I think it. it just means that they'll be able to charge more for tickets. I think that's literally yeah. it. So it all leads into the situation where you've got like eight teams that are benefiting, right? And Japan, who are you know going to be promoted as a Tier 1 nation, and Fiji, who are going to be included as the one non-Tier 1 nation because we've now got an odd number of Tier 1 nations. And good for Fiji and Japan right yeah you know all of that don't mind that at all and like francisco isaac who's a good like portuguese journalist they like, made this point as well but the world rugby voting system is so broken and corrupt and like the point is in the romania video that's just gone out that like romania didn't get a vote on the world rugby council until 2016 and there are still so many nations that don't get any vote or any representation at once the way it's set up right to give a very brief outline of this because i do think this is relevant to this game because like yes, this yes. is a phenomenal game between two tier two nations and those won't be happening you know, or they'll be the only thing that's happening. Between Bear in mind, nations. one of them is now a tier one nation. Yeah. You know, that, that just was... says so much about how we need to bring these guys forward. World Rugby are putting the structure in place for that to never happen again. Yeah. That's what they're doing. They're basically going, we're going to make Japan the last tier one nation and we're going to cash out. We've yeah. got up to 12. That's fantastic. We got up to 11 even. That's fantastic. We're cashing out now. We're going. We're going yeah. home. We're taking our ball and going home. And we're only going to play with the kids on our street. And we're not going to let anyone else come over. As long play. as they're posh and rich enough. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, so the way the World Rugby voting system works, right? The tier one nations get three votes each. A handful of tier two nations who they invited get one vote each. And Japan for a long time, or you know, since sort of... 2016, 17-ish, have got two votes, so they were kind of a tier 1.5 nation, but now no one gets, now Japan are officially tier 1, they get three votes, and then yeah, so the likes of Canada, the USA, Romania, Georgia, all get one vote each, so they get a third of the say on anything that the traditional nations, the posh nations get, the most nations with more money, which is what it ultimately is, because you know, like, world, it's not world rankings, it's not the eight best teams in the world. Yeah. It's the eight teams they like the most, essentially. Yeah. So those guys get three times the vote. However, it's not even that every nation gets a say. So like Chile are in this World Cup. They don't get a say on how it's run. Which is Um, insane. Yeah. It comes purely out of their like governing body. So it's Sud America Rugby. They get two votes. I believe it might even just be one. So like Africa's gets one or gets two. And like all of the, you know, North American rugby, I don't think I just get one because the US and Canada get one separately. But yeah, so you end up with this kind of situation where I don't have it directly in front of me. But basically, right, 
the Six Nations holds more power than the rest of rugby world put together because of the way it's set up. Yeah. And so because of something that would financially benefit the Six Nations a bit, they're willing to throw the entire rest of the rugby world, past, present and future, under the bus. Yeah. You know, they go bang on about how much they love growing the game and growing bloody rugby values all the time. And it's just really harmful. And I know we're only talking about potentially a four to six year period of them having no promotion relegation here. But it's let's be honest, we all know it's more than that. Yeah. We all know that they're going to ring fence it. And think what a four to six year period could do. Yeah. You know, like you've got this Georgia team at the minute, right? Who have been two of the tier one nations. Yeah. In the last year. Right. They're not going to get a chance to progress. They won't get another chance to beat one of them. They won't get yeah. another chance to do that. Potentially. Right. If this came in next week, if that came in after this World Cup. Right. And it's going to come in a few years down the line. It's going to come in directly before 2027 rather than directly before 2023. Georgia wouldn't get another chance until the next World Cup. Yeah. Which creates all sorts There's of no utter... platform whatsoever. And also no. the point that you made in the Romania script that's again just gone out mm. is that it only takes a four to six year period to send a team under as yeah. happened. You know, that was how long it took for Romania to go from being on the verge of beating the All Blacks to being a tier two nation. Yeah, exactly. You look at how good Romania were in the 80s and early 90s a bit when they kind of rebuilt a bit after that 87 World Cup, which we talked about where they kind of, it was kind of the end of an aging team that, and they didn't quite pull off the results they wanted. And I think if they had, maybe they could have kicked on. But instead, they got unlucky with the timing of the first World Cup. If it had come a year beforehand, it was when they were beating France. If it yeah. come a couple of years later, it was when they were beating Wales and Ireland. Scotland, yeah. Um, yeah. So it kind of just like, they got really unlucky for a bit of timing. And then it led to them being in the situation that they were, you know, a couple of years ago. And they've started to pull it back a bit now. But still the situation where like, it looked completely bleak and like they wouldn't qualify for another World Cup a couple mm. of years ago. Yeah. And thankfully, they found some younger players. And Andy Robinson did an amazing job of bringing them back from the brink. But it can get really worrying. As you say, like it can, and a few years without big games, without the ability to like, how do you interest fans that aren't from one of those handful of nations if they can't play the biggest teams and they can't progress upwards? Yeah. Right. How do you excite those teams? Yeah. But also, how do you excite fans from those nations when you go, well, this is it. We just play the same 12 teams over and over again. And it's not going to get the like, right level of coverage because rugby doesn't care about them, you know? Yeah. If like, they're not going to be correctly broadcast if it's they're only playing against what everyone views as the lesser nations. That's it. Well, if you're British, right, and you get into rugby as an adult and you're used to football or whatever, where, you know, there is this genuine world of teams, you get into rugby, right, and you realise there are, there are 12 teams now and four of them are us. Yeah. Then... I don't know, like it was in a place a couple of years ago. You're like, there is genuine growth with the way Chile have grown, the way women's rugby is taking off. The... Yeah, Uruguay. And now it... Yeah, Uruguay, South American general, like Paraguay, they've just invested in, right? They're supposedly not going to expand the World Cup for 2027. They're going to look at 2031 instead, which might be too late once again, because you you question whether if this all comes in, you're locking off the tier two nations. They won't get to a point which they can possibly compete because the likes of Georgia will be just like stuck yeah, they won't and be able like, to develop. It's going to be... No. I hasten to use the word unsafe to play against the best nations mm. in the world, but it's going to be a complete blowout. It's not going to be yeah. a test for you know the All Blacks or whoever they play against to play against Georgia. Yeah. As it was in, say, 2015, even though that was a 50-point blowout, like it was a test match for at least half an hour. Yeah. Whereas you're not going to have that anymore because all Georgia will be doing is playing against Poland every week. Yeah. Yeah, well, great. 
the Rugby Up Championship. Georgia drew one game last year. And otherwise, I think they've won every game for 12 years. Yeah. Because they've just hit that point where there's like, there's no ceiling where they can go further up. And I do think like promotion relegation in the Six Nations is a different conversation because Six Nations are the mm. only safe point for like income and growing new fans in rugby outside yeah. of a World Cup. I do and think there's a valid argument for the whole Georgia thing if the Six yeah. Nations with promotion relegation. Now that they've beaten two teams. Yeah. I think like, I felt very differently about this this time last year before they beat They've blown it wide open. How they have. Good on them. Yeah. Yeah. If they get one more win under their belt against a Six Nations team, you then go, be impossible well, to got to make the conversation. Yeah. 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 And I do understand that I think the Six Nations is a weird one because it is the only financially stable thing in rugby. Yeah. yeah. And it is also the only time that in the... That and Bill Beaumont, world, they're the only financially stable things in rugby. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah, formerly burn of the port, but formerly Andy Gomasol as well. Yes, we are uh, aggressively agreeing with each other here, and I think we're going in circles a little bit. Look, yeah, but to I don't know to kind of finish my point, I guess the Six Nations I think is kind of an important tool that we should be using to get people into rugby, and we're not. Rugby is instead blocking everything off and making it incredibly insular to the point at which it will be, it will die whether or not a concussion lawsuit comes along. Yeah. And it becomes incre- incredibly, incredibly hard to be excited about anything other than the World Cup when yeah. it feels like World Rugby is willingly setting everything on fire for a few quid. So, harumph. Harumph, harumph. harumph, harumph. It just, like, it really upsets me that, like, this Portugal team is so exciting and so great, and then making it into the World Cup is a huge deal and should be bringing people's attention to them, and it is, right? But then we're probably not going to see them again until the next World Cup, oh, playing don't... in big games, like... Like you're correct. And but even don't then, be like that. If they're not expanding it, they might not be a chance for them to make that next World Cup if other teams yeah. like are invested, whatever. And so it's just like the, you know, we need the Autumn Nations games to involve those tier two nations, other than just the Pacific Islands and Georgia, formerly Pacific Nations in Japan. You know, we need there to be, you know, Portugal going to play Scotland at Murrayfield in November. We need people to learn and, about Rodrigo Malta. You know. Yeah, and so much of that comes down to the media coverage and people talking about it properly. And like, but also, that did happen with world. Japan before they yeah. became a tier one nation. Like, they played in Murrayfield, and like, everyone's like, "Oh my god, Kenki Fukuoka, what a player!" Michael yeah. Leach, what a player! And that happened, and then they went to the World Cup and then beat everyone. Yeah, and like, I don't anyway. know. Like, I've got the look. There's a column in the Rugby World coming out soon that I've guessed this. Oh, that's why you've Ooh. said all of this. Um, no, but like I do, I have there's they have a monthly rant page. And as I mentioned to you the other day, my first three suggestions was like, can I do this as the rant? And they were like, no, Sam Lan's already done that. So as well as breaking my finger, he's taken all of my complaints. Uh, I noticed also, on TT Rugby how we don't. than you would have. No offense, but Sam's the best. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sam can do most things better than I can do anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, you and me both. Yeah. So point is only, right, I go in a bit of a rant there. They wanted me to keep it to a word count fast more than I could have gone on for, but have a look at that. Point is, this is a really good game between two team, two nations, and we need to be championing that and celebrating yes, that. Yes, and we're going to struggle to keep this podcast under two hours now. So Who cares? Who cares? This is worth it. Morgan Williams walks out looking really intense whilst holding a moose. What do you reckon to that? I reckon that is as heroic a moment as rugby will see for the next decade. Yes, I agree with that. But yeah, so as the game starts, right, what I think a commentator would describe as a nervy start for both teams. I think so. They both know the sheer magnitude of this, which is a great thing to be saying about a 
pool game, which is fourth versus yeah. fifth. But as I say, this is a quarterfinal. It just is. Yeah, like both teams are making so many mistakes, but I kind of really enjoyed that. Because I was just kind of looking but, at it, just going like, yeah. oh yeah, you both want this so much. That kind of adds to the whole thing, though. It's the the weirdly speculative closed-off rugby that they're playing. With like Canada try repeated chip kicks. Japan do a lot of running around a bit, then realising they're near their own 22 with them hoofing it. And it's really, really cagey in the best kind of way. Yeah. Where both teams are, as they say, feeling each other out. And they're both kind of just prodding the opposition and seeing what works and what doesn't. Yeah. I love Japan's pick and go until we think of a plan policy. Because like they're not picking and going because they're more powerful than the Canadians, because they're just not. Like Canada's pick and go game and they're more... I've been their strength so far in this tournament. Mm. That's what got them the lead against Wales. And like their D was brilliant in that game as well. But like their big kind of upfront nature has really, really helped them so far in this tournament. Japan are kind of the opposite that they love to kind of play expansive rugby and play good patterns and so on, as is kind of typical with a lot of Japanese rugby teams. But here there is a, like, they have that thing of like, we'll do a few pick and goes until Robbins has decided which move we're going to do. Like it takes him two to three minutes to figure one out and then they'll go, okay, yeah. let's give this a go. Then we'll pick and go again and then we'll see what happens yeah and there is this like i don't know it's hard to call for the first 15 minutes who's on top both teams as we've said repeatedly really level really kind of just finding ways to try and stress the opposition without necessarily breaking them yeah a lot of spilled balls like either in rucks or out of hands and not in particularly ambitious positions it's not like they're chucking wide balls and then the wing is just dropping it from a really ambitious pass yeah no they're just sort of tripping up a bit and not quite landing things and the accuracy being off but like i worry this is making it sound like a bad thing it's not no it's not and like if you're watching two thirds teams play against each other you'd think oh this Mm. is kind of shit but with it being internationals i think it's really great because they're actually doing something to capitalise on each other's errors and stuff, all these kicking battles that they that have, have in the first 15 minutes end completely neutrally with someone yeah. end up throwing in on the halfway line is what happens on pretty much all of them. Goa Ruga is brilliant in a kicking battle because somehow he covers every single blade of grass when he doesn't have the ball. Like, wherever they kick it, it's just like, oh yeah, well, I'm a Ruga, so I'll cover that. And like, he's not got the best kicking game in the world, but like, it's perfectly adequate as long as he's got a bit of space and it's not like he's receiving it from the nine in and he's got loads of people ha- like hammering after him like he's got a fairly decent accurate boot on him but he doesn't kick it miles and I, I quite like that like japan are constantly going for space and then canada have like a load of players with massive boots and there's a real contrast in the kicking styles that they're going for early on but it, it's great somewhere 20 odd minutes in Canada work out, and I don't know why they didn't work this out in the weeks leading into the game, that Mike Pike's boot is so much bigger than the rest of this. Yes. And suddenly every ball is going to his hands. And there's a few times where like Japan are able to put far more pressure on, particularly in the second half, because they know it's going two passes out to Pike rather than Smith clearing it directly off 10. Yeah, yeah. And they run that kind of false boot move to get it back into the 22, because of course you could do that back then, to then just, just boot it downfield. And it was an effective tactic, but you're right, like Japan eventually figured that out. And can we just have a quick word for, in this first half, and we'll talk about the second half when we get there, how good is the Japanese defence? Oh, I mean, this is great. It's it's great to Canada, watch. 
do get on top for a lot of this first half and are the team with more possession in the 22. But most of the game is actually spent in the 222. So, you know, yeah. make what you will have heard of it. But yeah, there's a real fire about Japan in defense that I don't think Canada quite have in the same way yeah. uh, until the end of the game, where there's a real sense of they are putting their bodies on the line. They desperately care about this. Yes. As it, it feels like that World Cup final effect. Yeah. feels like, you know, the, the 2011 World Cup final or the 87, you know, World Cup finals we've covered on this podcast, where it is one team who are better than the other side and one team who are honestly okay with dying on the field. <laughs> yes, yes. And like, there's so many Canadian attacks where I look at it and think, based on what we've seen already of Japan in this World Cup, mm. because they've played against Australia and Fiji and to an extent Wales, where you think they're going to have to pull something out of the bag that they don't have, which is yeah. not only physical, but also really intelligent defence here. And actually they have that. And clearly yeah. they've genuinely really worked on what they've done wrong in D against Wales and against Australia. And I love that about them. Like their line speed's fantastic in that first half. Whenever Canada get on the front foot, they get off the line and they force an error. Yeah. Yuta Imamura is absolutely phenomenal defensively. Yeah, he is. Really he smart has... Player. Such a great job done in shutting down oppositions, leading the line and making sure that he's connecting and he's yeah. not letting other players, you know. Anishi likewise, like those two work yeah. really well together in D. No, they absolutely do. The two players you think um, of as attacking players. Yeah, yeah. But I think Imamura is like defensively absolutely sublime. I think he is just fantastic defensively. I think the other kind of standout in defence is Takara Miyuchi, the captain. From mm. eight, it's oh, yeah, constantly yeah. just driving standards. And just, you can always either see him or hear him, or hear yes. what I presume is him, just always calling the lineup. And that Japanese line is so loud. You can always hear defenders always on their feet yelling to get off the line. And he's clearly driving those standards. And the amount of times he gets off the line and forces knock-ons in that first half alone is ludicrous. He's so good. You completely understand why he's the captain, don't you? A hundred percent. He's been brilliant all tournament, hasn't he? And like, there's a story about him that John Kerwin came in to the squad in 2007. He was appointed on January 1st, 2007, quite last minute before this World Cup. And he took one training session with the squad and instantly identified Miyuchi as the captain. Okay. Like in the first session, he was like, oh, that's my guy. That's the captain. And yeah, shoved him in, made him captain immediately. I trust Kerwin's judgment on that. Yes. So he'd previously been captain until Jean-Pierre Alessard, who we talked about in a previous episode, came in. Of stripped him of the captaincy. So he was then not captain for like a year and a half. And then Kerwin comes in and is like, mate, you're obviously the captain. Yeah. What are you doing? He looks more like a captain than he does a number eight. Like a captain is yes. his main position. He's one of those players and he's fantastic in all facets as a number eight. But his leadership stands out as his best quality on the pitch above all else. I think I realised as I watched this, like I have such a soft soft spot for Japanese captains. Mm, great genre of player. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I've completely forgotten the guy's name from 87, who I really loved with the scrum cap, who was brilliant, played in the back row, and I can't remember his name for the life of me. But I really, really grew fond of him. And you look at players, I mean, like Michael Leach more recently. I've just remembered his name's Hayashi. Hayashi, yes. What a captain Hayashi was. Anyway, there is, I think, one particularly, to the casual observer, notable point in the first half that mm. we need to talk about in terms of Japan on the attack. 
And we've spoken so many times, including on this episode, about Japan's emphasis on rehearsed set moves and yes. the beauty of seeing Japan play with the rugby ball and the many ways you can get into space by running different lines and only throwing the ball backwards. It's fascinating the amount of tries they create for themselves in Rugby World Cups by doing that kind of thing, is it not? It is wonderful. It is an absolute delight to see. However, do you know what really adds to that? Go on, what really adds to that? I think something that adds a layer, adds a dimension okay. to it. Anytime you can run a pre-rehearsed preset move that you have spent months practicing. Oh, so they're that it beautiful, runs aren't they? I think something that makes it only better is if you get a bloody massive lad running at a man without ribs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good point you make because what happens here is the set players, and we've described this a few times on the pod before, but like the set players, nine passes to someone in the 10 position, but instead of the 10, it's the blind winger, Kasuki Endo, mm. who, as you say, is quite a big, quick, balanced runner, isn't he? And Kasuki Endo has... I was going to say he has a couple of runners off him. He doesn't really. He has the ball, though, and he just runs directly at the opposition 10. Would you yeah. say that's the move, more or less? Pretty much. Pretty much. I think there's a little bit of, like, subterfuge in they don't want Ryan Smith at any time to line him up. But there's not much more than that. Yeah. When watching this, I slated in my notes, like, that's a terrible tackle attempt by Ryan Smith. He essentially just stands upright and it's always going to get bounced. Like, you know, he doesn't, like, split feet as you go into contact. Mm. Like, doesn't slow his feet down sort of it's... thing. He's, it just runs as a speed bump. But you do make a really good point that... Obviously, he's not going to be technically good in contact. He's been murdered about nine times so far. Well, yeah, it's a tackle technique you can you can get away with if you're a petty vanilla. Yeah, like, <laughs> if you're a Canadian fly half who is at the best of times, right? Like, not enormous. You know, he's six foot tall, Ryan Smith. He's not a yeah. tiny lad, but. Still, he's not a massive, imposing presence in the defence. And then you factor in the fact that by this point, I think Makiri's had like six nipples at him. Yeah, I think no, so. No, I genuinely think he's been smashed in contact twice by this point. Yes. In yes. 15 and he, minutes. When you say smashed, he has been fucking smashed. Yeah. And hasn't had this the ball. 12 minutes in, right? In the yeah. first 12 minutes of the game, he's taken contact quite a few times and he's been absolutely annihilated at least twice. Yeah. Like yeah. two out of about 86 in this game. Yes. I think actually the ratio is slightly more in favour of getting smashed because, as I say, he doesn't have the ball when it happens. Yeah, yeah true. So, yeah, he's not he's not in the best shape, not in the best condition to be making <laughs> this tackle and not the biggest lad possible. It's an inspired move, you know? Yeah. Get your big winger to just run at the guy who's currently dying. He's on life support and he's in the fly-off well, channel. Get your gonna go one or two best ways, right? runner at him. I remember playing a game once where like I had to make a few tackles immediately after coming on at half time. And then like for the rest of the game, like that's the most I've ever put my body on the line. And I was like, well, you know what? Like I'm in for a penny now. I will break <laughs> everything else because I already feel enormous pain. Yeah. Might or, as well be like, down. Why am I playing this sport? Do they have tackling in ping pong? <laughs> yeah, I think that on a weekly basis, but yeah, I totally get that. And I think that is probably the direction that the Japanese are heading in with Ryan Smith. But it works in the opposite way. As you say, like sometimes you're in for a penny, but also sometimes you get bounced by Kazuki Endo. Yes, and he absolutely does. He goes flying, mate. He goes flying. Yeah. 
He wakes up two postcodes over. It's the biggest kicking distance of any Japanese thing throughout this game. And it's not even a kick of the ball. He just basically high-flying kicks Ryan Smith into the stratosphere. So Canada play Australia four days later in the same ground, in the same venue. And uh, Ryan Smith actually wakes up 10 minutes into that game. (laughs) He gets knocked so far, he travels through time and space. It's like the bloody start of Planet of the Apes. Like he flies so far, he moves forward in time. (laughs) And is there four days later, lying on the pitch, watching Anderman Rowe run out in his shirt. And this is the one thing. Look, one thing I couldn't, I couldn't shake watching that tackle. Andrew Monroe would have smashed it. Oh, of course he would have made a titanium, mate. Yeah, he's basically an eight and a ten. No, ten and eight's body. There we this go. This is why you pick the titanium ten, not the tinfoil ten. Yeah, yeah. Who was it you described as the tinfoil ten? I can't remember. Was it Ryan Smith? I don't think so. But anyway, anyway. Meanwhile, Kasuki Endo still has the ball, and. I'll tell you what, something we know about, because we're both fans of him, aren't we? Like, yeah, I realised yeah. how much I miss him as a player. Like, he was such a solid winger and a great finisher and just such a great open field runner. And that shows here, if you give him a bit of space and a one-on-one, you know who he's one-on-one against as well? Mm-hmm. DCH van der Merwe. Yeah, which no makes slash. it even more impressive. Kazuki Endo is probably about 30 metres out from the line here. And he has a bit of space on the outside of DTH, who he's running up against does the little fade in out kind of stuttery step and just goes man just hits the jets he's so good in space so interesting thing about kazuki endo right kazuki endo was part of something known as the matsuka generation which is a weird phenomenon that became very famous in japan as a thing that happened in the noughties where suddenly at once they had a disproportionate number of great athletes across sports born between April 2nd, 1980 and April 1st, 1981. What? So in this year, this one year, suddenly Japan produced like, so it was, it's named after uh, Dasuki Matsukara, regarded as maybe the best Japanese baseball player ever. Wow. And along there, alongside the same time as him, they had this enormous number of other athletes come through. So they had basically half of their like all-time greatest, you know, the last how many of years, baseball team came through at the same time. You had college athletes, you had like Olympians, you had all over like Were there across any other rugby multiple players sports. in there. So I'm not sure. Like, so you had, you know, cross baseball was the big one. So there's like, there are dozens of baseball players that came through there that are all regarded as like greats. Okay. You had a handful, you had like two footballers, you had a handful of boxers, handful of wrestlers, sumo as well. Yeah. So it kind of became this like massive deal. And then you had Kazuki Endo as the kind of big rugby one. He was the wow. biggest name, like rugby player from that generation. So I think a kind of That's minorly. Awesome fascinating thing like he is the rugby player from that he's the represent of rugby that's that's so cool and it's really good that his name is attached to a historic thing in japanese sport because yeah i feel like he's so underrepresented in like rugby history other than like there's a couple of tries he scored at rugby world cups that have been quite well remembered i'd never seen this one before weirdly i think this mm, is better I than had. certain tries that i've seen before shared sure. that he scored but like, he's such a good player. Such uh, a great, just technical winger. The one other player from the Japanese squad who fits the kind of criteria is Natalia Yoto, who doesn't really have the same level of, yeah. you know, on game against Australia in this competition. Not really of the same calibre. Endo is the one that you go to as the Mazakura generation 
That's player quality. in rugby. That's so cool that he's got that attached to it. Yeah. I love that as a concept. Even though there's a chance that it's pure coincidence, I love Always that coincidence and bollocks it. and whatever else. Yeah. yeah, and there is like, there was about a big Japanese documentary done on it on like why this happened, what came oh, of it. Mate. I hope it's um, there. Whether there was like other circumstances. That's class. But yeah, it was just believed to be like the most talented athletic generation Japan's ever produced all came through at once. That's class. That's class. What a player, Kazuki Endo. Yeah. Missed the guy. And what a solo try he brings out here. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely phenomenal finish. Well worth looking up. Like, mm. I think this is a game worth watching back as yeah. a way of hyping yourself up. Certainly the, the second half. Yes, the second half might be, but you just like make sure you leave the first half on early enough. You can watch a replay of Endo's try because yes. it is superb. Yes, 100%. And like, to be fair, even if you're not really paying attention to the first half, it's worth having it on in the background, you know? Yeah, So you get absolutely. a feel for where the teams are at and the level of knock-ons and hospital passes that are being thrown. <laughs> and of course, on top of that, the Japanese D, I think, really sets the tone for the direction the game's headed in. The amount of errors that they're forcing. There's a great moment where DTH throws a hospital pass inside to Spicer and Spicer's just like, no, do not send me down this channel. And then he realises the guy opposite him is Bryce Robbins. And it's just like, yes. oh, that's okay. You're sending me down the path of the opposition 10. That's fine. And he kind of braced himself for contact, at which point Bryce Robbins is like, no. Do you know who I am? I'm usually a centre or a fullback. I'm not usually a 10, so I'm going to absolutely guarantee that I'm going to smoke you here. And just takes his neck off. Just, just again, saw the taste for fly half ribs and went, what if this worked in the opposite direction? Yes. <laughs> and just Bryce Robbins just really wanted to prove he's not a 10 by defending, you know? And good, on him. good on him. He's as a 10. Yeah. I tell you what, but- Spice didn't run on his channel again. He let him know he was there. <laughs> The first half largely sort of blurs into one for me beyond the mm. endo try because a lot of it, and I just spend a lot of it in the 22. I think a lot of it begins, Morgan Williams takes a quick tap just inside Japan's half, which yeah. gets things going a bit. And yeah. it isn't necessarily a great decision, but it just states something. You know, it states the kind of purpose and how they're going to play this. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, at the time I looked at it and thought like, is that a great decision? Because the Japanese D, but actually mm. it did make sense because he tapped it and then he gave DTH like a good run on like a crash line. And mm. I realised, like, oh, wait, no, what he's doing there is just deliberately playing with tempo because Japan, great as their defence is, can they defend like that all day? Are they physically yeah. fit enough? Because we've all watched games, everybody listening to this has watched games where you see somebody work so hard in D and you question either, can they keep up in the second half or do they have reserves who can also do this in the second half? Especially yes. in this era. We've all seen games where that happens. And I guarantee we both at some point looked at this Japan team and questioned whether they are, they are those guys, you know? Yeah, and you do start to wonder as it's all ticking along. And because so much of that last sort of 15 minutes of the half is Canada just battering away on the 22. Yeah. And then there'll be a loose ball or they get pushed into touch. Or, or Mewtwo can win the big case, turnover. Yeah. Ryan Smith throws a ball, like just some quick, straight after getting smashed. He gets back up to his feet and does like some really quick, soft hands to literally no one. Not even the touch judges outside him. <laughs> like he just throws it straight into touch. He doesn't even see the touch judge and go, oh, they must be one of our players. No one, nothing. But the joke's on everyone else because he can't get tackled if he doesn't have the ball. Oh, wait, no, True. he can. Shit. No, can. I mean, it's not stopped yeah. anyone before. It's, it's been proven before. But if the ball's in touch, they probably won't tackle him. They're he's less probably, likely. He's probably protected, even mm. with Jonathan Kaplan refereeing. But yeah, like the Japanese D 
day is just fantastic. You've got Miochi coming up with big turnovers. For some reason, Pat Radin gets a yellow card just before the end of the first half. Any idea what that's all about? No. So I, full disclosure, went for a nap between the first and second half. And a large part of that was brought on by the fact the second half started and they cut to Pat Reardon on the sideline. And I'm like, why is he in the bin? What's happened there? I completely missed it. And I meant to go back and check this before recording. And I didn't because I'm an amateur. The thing is, even if you did but go back and check... That is the greatest wouldn't... force for good in the world. That's true. Therefore, it's allowed. That's true. Great save there. Well done. But the thing is, yeah, if you did go back and check, you would be none the wiser. What okay. happens is... It's Anishi again comes up with a really big turnover on the floor, right? Jackal turnover inside the Japanese 22. So it's a big moment. And then the referee calls, it says, number two, come here. Then says, that's twice now, second infringement, and then sends him to the bin. And I don't get it. Did he bin him for holding on in the opposition 22? I don't think he did. I think Reardon must have, like, punched someone or said something or something off the camera but they don't show a replay or anything they're showing a replay whilst Reardon's getting binned so you can't see a referee like doing like a hand action or something so Reardon just goes to the bin I don't get it there is a penalty out of nowhere for like a forearm smash and a ruck which the touchdown steps in on is there which I think was against Reardon earlier on in the game and I was like well it couldn't be that because that was around like 20 odd minutes so I wonder if it was that you see Sometimes that. I wonder if this is like bad podcast content, or speculating on something that happened in a rugby <laughs> game 15 years ago. Yeah, it's but then I remember point. the whole podcast is stupid, so this is no worse. It is. It is. There is a slight significance to Reardon going to the bin, which is that Japan then look at this and go, right, they've not got a hooker, so let's just kick mm. to the corners and see if we can force them to throw badly into a line-out. And they try that, but there's two things that they forget about. One of them is that Bryce Robbins can't kick, and it's constantly just sending it, like prodding the ball about five metres further upfield than the original. Oh, player. it's an absolute nightmare. Bryce Robbins <laughs> is kicking. It's a horror show. He's, just, he's such a good player. I really want to stick yeah. up for him. And yeah, his kicking's an absolute horror show. The other thing they forgot about is Canada have two hookers on the field because mm. Aaron Carpenter's yeah. throwing into the lineouts, And yeah. there was one or two that go slightly wrong, like the first one he overthrows. But generally, he's a very good throw of the ball. So yeah. they kind of survived the period with Reardon in the bin. That's the thing. Like, and the commentators are amazed by this. Ben Tune, I think, is fantastic on commentary. He's great, isn't um, he? And Ben Darwin, both of them. Ben yeah, Darwin's really, really engaged, into like, forward play and stuff. Really into it. There's one point after Bryce Robbins has attempted a cross kick for um, Endo to chase. And Tune goes into some great detail on exactly what he would want from a fly half in yeah. that situation, both in terms of body language, in terms of call, and in terms of the kick itself. Someone that has scored in a World Cup, you know, in off a cross kick. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's very, very well tuned to the art of scoring very off a cross good. kick. Very good, well tuned. Um, yeah, and like he gives a level of insight there, but then like also he's very willing to engage with it. Yeah, and he is initially amazed, then starts to. I don't know if it clicks for people that Aaron Carpenter had played hooker at this point and goes on to convert to hooker full time after the 2015 World Cup. But yeah, is perfectly capable of doing that, able to fit in. He was the Josh van der Fleer of his time. Indeed, indeed. But I think it's such a an well, not increasingly. I think. It's always been a semi-important thing having a second player who doesn't play hooker who can throw in mm. because that, that can really save you when you've got a hooker who is as willing to go to the sim bin as Pat Reardon is. Yes. <laughs> he's, you know, just likes to volunteer, doesn't he? Yeah, he's great, Pat Reardon, though, and he has a very good game here. The next thing I've written down, by the way, is Kleberger mental illegal shit. Don't know what that means. But the next thing after that is Robin's mental deliberate knock-on unpunished. Did you yes. see this? Yes. Inside Are zone you... 22, on a line break, sends it flying. 
there's so many moments in this game that would be yellow cards nowadays. Yeah. And there's some stuff with the refereeing, right? Like, Kaplan is far happier to let, like, holding on go on for a long time. The player will have to be holding on for, like, 10 seconds before he gives it, where nowadays referees are calling it after about five. Yeah. Uh, which is just, you know, it's like a flavour of how the game's changed, whatever. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing, but let's, you know, there's a conversation. But I think professional fouls were far less harshly dealt with. Yeah. Cards were far rarer. I think actually the fact that teams are now so much better at dealing with them has probably led to referees being more willing to give cards regularly. True. But also, you know, it's kind of chicken and egg because teams have got better because they're more common. And because mm. red cards in particular are so much more common now than they ever were back in the oldie days. You know, the All Blacks have had more red cards in the last two years than they did in the 200 years before that. So, and the, the several thousand years before that, you know, they, they didn't get, no one if got a red millions. card in like thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole situation, but like, yeah, when reasons get a yellow card for unknown circumstances, then you have potential try scoring acts where no one's getting binned. It all feels a bit weird and fishy, but I don't think that's a reflection of Kaplan. I think it's a reflection of how it was refereed at the time. Yeah. And you actually have Joel Judka, who goes on to be the head of refereeing at World Rugby, yeah. was the TMO for this game. Yeah. And that's Very a kind of interesting guy. crossover, isn't it? Sure. The- you have Bryce Lawrence on touch and Alan Roland's the fourth official. So God, just it's, favourites. It's a are. star-studded refing team, isn't it? It's, it all really of, is. it's all of our favourites. It's only people that have been called a dickhead at least six times. Yeah. Matt by... Carley was actually watching in the stands. Yeah, I mean, Craig Joubert is the one you need to complete yes. the kind of like social media-hated controversy. Pantomime villain-type referee. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so... We'll talk about this last set of the half because I think this is weirdly oh, yeah. it's the this last is... sort of five minutes of the first half. It's kind of the start of the second half in a way, in terms of momentum and like big <laughs> yeah, moments. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Because it's Canada's big kind of statement attack, I suppose. Smith does this beautiful chip to the try line, and it lands just short, and Pike very nearly scores. He goes to dive on the mm-hmm. ball that it just hits touch. But that's the first point where you go, oh, wait, Canada are inches away from scoring here. At that point, Japan feels so like, oh, if we get to half half time, we'll be very lucky here. Because Yoshida, the nine, gets charged down like loads of times in that oh, first half. yeah. That's something we haven't quite covered. It's like how often Bryce Robbins is slicing kicks and yeah. how often Yoshida's getting charged down. Exiting is a real, real difficulty for them. But yeah, they have a lot of opportunities here, Canada, to go over. They go to the pick and go. Rod Snow is very close to scoring, like he's inches out, you can see on the camera, but they do really well to hold him out. They go wide to Mike Pike, and half a gap opens up for him, and you think, right, this is literally on half time, yeah. the clock is red, it's about to open up for him. Do you have any idea who makes the tackle? Yes, I do. I'm glad you ask. Yuta Imamura. I thought it might be. An absolutely unreal tackle. You also do have Yoshida stepping in and trying to like add his involvement. <laughs> it isn't much, but bless him, you know, he's he's a wee little boy and he, he tries to help. Absolutely phenomenal tackle by Imamura. Go on, talk us uh, what he does. Well no, I just think he's been fantastic all half attack and defense. Oh, we haven't really mentioned his kicking game. He's been slotting in as a kind of alternate kicking option in the 13 channel really nicely. Stuck some really nice stuff down the tram lines. You found Mike Pike, he's a very good boy, but sometimes he struggles to recover 
when tracking across because he's just got to lunk a lot of frame around, you know, and he's got like six wives to be chatting to and about 18 husbands. So he's just got a lot going on. And sometimes uh, Amor always just to like, slide things around, like force him into awkward positions. There's one in particular where he kind of catches like Culpin at fullback and managed to get a good net gain out of that. And then defensively, he's been absolutely sublime, positionally attacking. And then this is like an unbelievable tackle where he's both like making a huge impact and just managing to get on the ball, dislodges it, forced the knock on, on the try line. Like if this is a passive tackle, this is a try. And yeah. Canada go on to win the game. Yeah, but it's a knock on, it's on half time. It is it literally take half time. What incredible day that is. It's phenomenal. Like, they've held them out on the pick and goes. They've held like, a much heavier and stronger team out mm. on pick and goes on their own try line. That is so commendable for the forwards. If you're a back there, the fact that they've had to even go to their back line is a huge compliment to the forwards, let the alone first... Amuramura backing it up. Yeah, the end of the first half, Canada's maul and scrum start to get really on top. Mm, they do. And there's something about this game Rod that Snow's I love. Rod Snow's great in this game. Yeah, at first, I mean, so at the start of the game, like you have a succession of scrums which go back and forth where the other team just keeps winning it back on the yeah. opposition. The team, like you have like four scrums where one team just wins a push in against the head and they just yeah. keep going back and forth until eventually Canada get a free kick and they just go, we're just going to kick this one and we're not going to go again because that could have been all game. But Japan at points have a nudge in the scrum and then Canada get really on top of like either side of half time. But I loved, yeah, Japan having a nudge in the scrum for most of the game, Canada having a big edge at the line out for most of the game, but both of those do swing. And it kind of just like balances out how even these two teams are. Like for every strength the opposition have, the other side have one that is equal that they can take yeah. things away from. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many just mini moments like that where it is a little bit rock, paper, scissors. And yeah, yeah. They constantly get on top of each other, and then the other one just gets away with it. So the halftime score is five nil, and don't get me wrong, it does feel like five nil. Like it's been quite uneventful in that sense of mm. you know line breaks and big kind of moments. But you know what's bubbling. You know that this is going to be decided in the last minute, in the last five minutes, whatever, on one moment, and that really sets up the second half nicely. And I'm interested to get your take on this because I think you're um, you're quite tuned into kind of how coaches psychologically approach games and stuff. And I think you've probably got quite a fascination with this, as do mm. I, of course. So the commentators point out that John Kerwin is extremely aggressive in the way that he talks to the Japanese, but, but positively aggressive, you know, yeah. in the way that he's reinforcing Japan. How do you think, if you're a head coach and Japan here are 5-0 up, and their defence mm. has been massive, but probably tiring. How do you think you approach that as a head coach? Well, this is the interesting thing that Cohen does as well, right? He doesn't take them into changing rooms. He yes. takes them to the sideline, and they stand that kind of dugout area where the subs have been sat. They all graph around the group in kind of, you know, arm around each other, very old school style. And he does the team talk there. And he said, he looks, so hence we can see what he's doing. He mm. looks incredibly fired up, incredibly sort of shouty and ang- And as you say, angry, like reinforcing angry, but like still shouty. Which I think is an interesting one. Firstly, because his Japanese wasn't great. So he's doing a different language. If I were the coach, which I am not a coach, I don't think I make a very good one, etc. I've made that point many times. I'd have thought the kind of move is to reassure them and like, not reassure them, but like keep it short, sharp messages rather than talking a lot. Yes. To very much get to the point, try and cover, you know, the ground and make sure that they know that they've done well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and then get them fired up again right at the end. But it feels like a short, sharp message. And yeah. as you said, like you wouldn't preferably be doing that in Japanese as yeah. best you can. I'm so glad you said all of that because mm. 
I as a coach have been in that situation many, many times. Mm. You know, we've been in a tight game with an opposition who you know are quite evenly matched and potentially sharper than you. And some of those occasions, my team has gone on and won the game. Some of the times they have not. In my experience of when it's gone well, I think the way I will have done it is I'd call the team in. I would say, right, we're going to do three breaths together. Because I think, mm. and do that at half time. And you, you do your three breaths. You see a lot of sevens teams do that. And first, because first and foremost, I think that breaks a boundary. If the coach is doing the breaths with you and they're kind of mm. rewarding you with that and they're, they're saying, right, let's get some oxygen in. And yeah, then you yeah. say, right, that was a fucking class half, lads. Like that D was absolutely incredible. And as you say, you, you tell them that, you reinforce them. Then you say, right, okay, lend it over to the players and get them to say, right, what three things do we need to do better? Mm. And you get them to come up with them and then you maybe restructure it and you go, as you say, three points and then you go back out. Or I think the other thing is you, you come in and you have like two technical points you lead on. Yeah. You like emotionally you're in the right place now, right? 100%. I've got two things that we need you to, like to keep correct technically. And otherwise you want to just be like, no, you're doing everything right. Apart from these two things, you yeah. do this and this is ours. And, and we'll get final. Yeah, Bam. and we've won it. And that's it. The, the fact that they are emotionally in the right place. And that's why I think you need to, you need the players to lead the halftime yeah. rather than telling them what to do. You get them to figure out what they've done because they have the engine on the pitch. They know better than you anyway. I'm sure what John Kerwin was saying was completely correct there. And I mm. think his heart and his emotional kind of standpoint was in entirely the right place. But I'd be so interested to see a full halftime of what, what was being said and who else was talking there because... I don't think Japan are in an any worse place as they come out for the second half, but I think they know the onslaught that's about to come for them. Yeah, and I do think there's a little bit of the fire has gone for the yeah. first period after halftime. Yeah. I don't think they're as set. They look like they've stopped for 10 minutes, had a little lie down, and they're not quite at the same intensity. And it's not necessarily a... doesn't make them any worse as a team or any worse to watch. Not at all. Not like, at all. I think that like next level, this is the biggest game of our lives type deal isn't quite there still. They're now yeah. like a switched on rugby team rather than a chaotically focused one. Yes. And yes. I wo- I really do wonder when it was raining as well, mm. him deciding to leave them out. Was that a part of it? He didn't want them running back into the rain. He wanted to remain mm. this kind of like one consistent. I don't know. Cause you know, it is harder when you've got out the rain to motivate yourself to run back out. But do you want a moment of being cool and dry and perhaps changing shirts? Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Clive. Orders. But, no one no one had that ability. I don't know. Yeah. I think... We're both idiots and don't know what we're on about, but no, it's I interesting John to speculate, I think. Kerwin takes a number of emotional risks mm. in this, and some of them come off, some of them don't. Yeah. And fair play to him. Like, he's he's mm. clearly so passionate about winning this, as is Rick Suggett. And I wanted them both to succeed, so yeah. uh, the eventual arc probably isn't, isn't too bad. No, but... This is the kind of game where I was cheering for a draw. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was cheering for just whoever was on the attack, you know. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the teams come back out after half time. Well, one of the teams comes back out. One of them stays out after half time. And it gets very cagey in the first 10 minutes of the second half. The amount of midfield malls being set up is firstly very yeah. 2007 and secondly, very telling of neither team wanting to go wide and risk a knock-on. A quick moment for Rod Snow's mauling technique that he would look at who is potentially about to join the mall from the opposition, who's potentially, you know, don't think where they are around the back of the mall and then rejoin. He just keeps an eye out for those and just shoves them to the floor. And he sees, he, like, he eyes Soma and Nishiura up a couple of times and she goes, right, okay, I'm shoving to the floor. Then he gets back up and goes, okay, you can go again. And then shove him <laughs> to the floor again. That's, that's great. He's negated two lads for the sake of him not being in a mall. I rate it's it. Superb. Superb. Yeah. It's the dream, really, I would say. Also, the other thing about Canada, and they did this a bit in the, set of the first half, but in the second half, they do way more chip kicks. They've clearly noticed yes. that Japan's line speed is their main thing. So let's call it off by constantly putting it in behind and making the back three have to work. It's funny, we have Japan doing a lot of chip kicks in the first half and Canada in the second half. Mm. But yeah, you also have, we haven't mentioned him at all really since we read through the team, but Morgan Williams is excellent. Just in terms of maintaining tempo and control of the game, clearly being a leader without being like a over the top dickhead who makes stuff about him, Sergio, etc. But he's just like, he's excellent in how he manages the game, how he keeps the tempo up, his decision making. There's a number of things that you look at as like, that's a really risky play that like overly lively and energetic scrum halves go for sometimes. And they all actually are executed with this kind of calmness of like a 35 year old, like Samuel Marx or Morgan Parra or Greg yeah. Laidlaw type scrum half. Yeah. I like that you led on Marx there, but yeah, I think pretty much the first positive thing that Canada do in that second half is Morgan Williams chipping them into Japanese territory, just as Pat Reardon's about to come back on. And obviously Japan can't exit, can they? So yeah. next thing you know, Canada have the first proper attacking line out of the second half. A couple of minutes in, as soon as Reardon's back on, like what more could you want than that? What more could you want yeah. than that? Well, I don't know. So, I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned about Morgan Williams is that a few years earlier, he'd beaten Kieran Bracken out to the Saracens starting jersey when oh, he was at Saris. And like we mentioned he played for Saracens for a bit. Didn't mention that he was like, became first choice over the course of that season above Kieran Bracken. I actually didn't know um, that. Yeah. So I think that's the kind of big highlight. And just one thing I wanted to mention, seeing as we won't get many more chances with him, but you can kind of see that like Saracen's influence coming through. Yeah. And I know this France was like... stage as well. Yeah. So it's constantly before... with massive packs against him. Yeah. It's before like very good, very good. All of that comes in <laughs> before you have that kind of big change in culture at Saracen's, but they were still always a kind of kicking sensible team like sure. even when they were a mid-table side they were a sensible boring mid-table side yeah in the best um, way possible yeah and so you kind of have that influence in a scrum half whose natural game is far more nippy and lively and live wiry yeah and so you kind of he kind of works perfectly because he can do both roles he yeah. can fit perfectly for whatever Canada need him to be sure. and so we see it very in points there's stages during Kansas kind of onslaught at the start of this half where they need someone to up the tempo and he's doing that brilliantly. And they have other periods where he just needs someone to go like, no, you pick and go now. No, Rod Snow, mm. you go again. Rod Snow again. Rod's just keep giving it to Rod Snow. And 
he'll do that as well. Yeah. And I asked just there, what more could you want than a line-out in the opposition 22? But the mm. result of said line-out is not bad. Because as soon as Pat Reardon's out the bin, he's like, you know what? I quite like some of that try-scoring malarkey. The first play, he's out of the bin. The first play. As soon as he's out of the bin, he stands on the touchline to throw the ball in, goes to the back of the mall and dives over. It's brilliantly constructed. It's mm. a bigger pack against a smaller pack, but you still have to find a way around it the way that Japanese team are defending. I don't know much about malls, but I know that was a good one. We also have a lovely thing in the lead-up here where Jonathan Kaplan, right? Say we like about him being a racist and everything else, but... He is also a man who is very, very pernickety about numbers in the line-out. The first half, like five or six times, he's warning the teams about numbers in the line-out. He free kicks people repeatedly for like not five, oh, not mate, five throws kicked, and five in the line-out. He free kicked Yoshida for not feeding a scrum that was like at 45 degrees that was moving constantly. Yeah. Dickhead. Anyway. So um, lead up here, right? A lot of this comes from... Canada's kind of stay in this 22. They get a penalty off the back of a Japanese line-out from a stab through by Ryan Smith, which Kaplan blows as numbers in the line-out, gives Canada a free kick. That whole Canada try their score, their first score of the half. And it's weird because like it didn't feel like a one-score, like 5-0. It felt like a one-score game is in its close. It didn't yeah. feel like there'd only been a one-score in the game. Yeah, I get it. I get that. Yeah, it's like, it felt like at least being a couple of penalties or something. It made me understand what football fans, how football fans feel when a game is one all. Yeah, I get that. And I get like, that. that was a great game. And I'm like, well, you, you had two moments that are interesting. Yeah. I was like, no, this is great. But it's tense. Yeah, it's yeah. very tense. Also, quick word for, speaking of, getting away with things at lineouts. How good is Mike James's jump and making the throw look straight before this try? He does the <laughs> yeah. whole stretching his body to make it look like he's caught the ball down the middle and like really stretch for it. It's like, no, that ball is clearly not straight, but he's done such a good job of masking that so they can go and score the try. Yeah. We're not going to talk about them much, right? But the all-Mike second-row combo for Canada was superb again. They're great. M- Mike James, I really, really rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Mike Burak, I like as a kind of like, he seems like a really lovely man, but also a bastard on the pitch, which yeah. I'm a big fan of. Yeah, my favourite kind of Canadian player. Yep, was also like... A proper to goody. I don't know if we mentioned this because we did talk about it a bit on the last podcast. You know why he took up rugby? Why? He was spotted while at university by one Mr. Spence Spike McTavish. Oh shit, Spike McTavish. We might Spike have talked about this, I feel like he has come up recently, but what a guy. Spike, Spike McTavish, as I like to call him. <laughs> favorite from the 87 series, basically spotted this like massive, like six foot eight bloke around the uni and went like, do you want to come and play in the second row? Oh, he was a basketballer, wasn't he? Um, yeah. Spike McTavish. <laughs> what well, yeah, a player. And so was Burak. He was a basketballer. Right. And he just spotted this That's massive cool. lad. He went, can you come play rugby with us? And he was good and went on to play for Canada. Yes, Arachnid. What a guy. But yeah, so... Canada score that and bring it to five all. As you say, it feels like one all, doesn't it? The thing I want to point out here as well is Yoshida, God bless him, he's a great scrum off, but he does not have a good game here. So they bring him off and they bring on Chilwell. Oh, he's Kim. injured. He gets injured. Oh, did you go and get injured? He does right, his knee, okay. yeah. Okay. And they bring Which on Chilwell Kim. I wonder if Yoshida's injury is one he was carrying going into the game. Makes sense. Because apparently there were worries about that. Like they called up, yeah. 
Shul Wong Kim, who they called up like a week earlier. Yeah, playing against Wales under- coming in was brilliant against Wales off the bench when yeah. he played that sort of 10 minutes. And I was delighted to see him again. These are his only two caps for Japan. I know. Which is gussing. Which is He's brilliant. He mad. Play, he plays with so much pace. He's like a kind of Atsushi Hoasa or um, a Saito or that kind of a scrum off, which Japan often kind of bring through. Obviously, he's of Korean descent. Yes. But, um, but he's excellent again on this game. And he really brings exactly what Japan wants out of him. Because, as I say, Yoshida, bless him, doesn't have the best of times out there. But Kim is great off the bench. There's a really interesting thing to be done on Japanese players of Korean descent. Yeah. Because there's now a sort of lineage of it. And I don't know if it starts with Shulman and Kim or if there are those going back even further. I'm sure there's bound to be. But you, of course, have your boy. Jiwon Goo, my boy. Jiwon Goo. You have Sun Chung Lee, the fly yes, half of in the team at the minute. All of Korean He's descent. Well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe a piece on that in the upcoming show of Rugby World. I don't know. Oh, nice. There may be a piece with uh, How Sun much are you Lee. getting fucking paid um, to say that on this podcast every time? Yes, so... Ruby World should have sponsored Kerry Sweeney World Cup, for God's sake. Oh, they should have. I'll pitch that to Al. For, so... for the 03 series. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, Kim comes in, and, yeah, I think he makes an impact. I think he, like, adds value. He certainly adds value excellent. to the game, if not to Japan. Yes. Oh, I think he's great. I think he's great. There's a really nice point where Japan finally play like wide to wide. And they actually, mm. instead of just playing, you know, the width that they've been setting, they use the entire width of the pitch. Like, whoa, there's loads of this place. And then kind of accidentally in a kind of modern Ireland kind of way, leave loads and loads of players stood really wide because that was where it was convenient at the last breakdown. And it's like, <laughs> oh no, we've got loads of men over here as long as we can actually execute passes. And they do. Someone, and I'm not entirely sure who it is, makes a brilliant tackle on Lua Manu who looks like he's about to make a break. And mm. Kim goes to the blind side and you think like oh, they're yeah. playing with so much pace here and it's electric and it's like it's not necessarily the correct decision by Kim to go to the blind side, but he makes a bit of a break out of it because he's so quick to the work. Mm. And then we kind of have this like start of period of Japanese pressure starts to build. After that break, they get into the 22 of the penalty. And suddenly with Canada's mall and line out having been completely on top throughout most of the game and having just scored off a line out less than 10 minutes earlier, Japan on the edge of the 22, go for this one line out, go for this one mall. Thompson takes it, obviously, and then leads this this mall that is initially a mess and not going anywhere. But then slowly, once they get a bit of a nudge, it just like accelerates and it goes from it's being like, this static moment, mess to just like pelting up towards within five meters of the try line. It's such a statement that it's Japan who have that mall rather than yeah. Canada. So yeah. Like, no, we're the smaller pack and we've taken, they do it twice in a row and they get penalties yeah. out both of them. So they then kick for the corner and they almost get over again. And you kind of have them. There's oh, the, the thing that's funny, I think, about that mall is like the, the referee calls the penalty at the end of it. And before kicking for the corner again, basically the entire Japanese pack go down injured. Like they've <laughs> never gone through that level of physical effort before. <laughs> never gone through that exertion at once. We're just here to handle the ball, lads. Yeah, we're here to do like funny little offloads. And you see that Mike James lad is fucking massive. Why do we I have to push him out of the way? I haven't eaten a rip in hours. <laughs> a brilliant moment, but an even bigger moment that Canada hold it out. Yeah, because Adam Kleberger. At that point, I thought the the daggers coming in. Adam Kleberger's turnover is fantastic. Absolutely amazing. He makes a huge tackle as well. 
he has two involvements in quick succession, which just changed the run of this. Cause you think this is the moment where Japan can pull away. It's kind yeah. of the thing that Cohen was probably preparing them for is trying to get these moments, right. And Adam Kleberger goes, I don't care about your team talk. I don't care about you standing in the rain. There's an absolutely huge tackle that dislodges the ball. And then there's later a turnover where he wins it back, allowing Canada to clear. Yeah. He, he comes up with a lot of big moments in the second half, Kleberger. Mm. But yeah, so that... as well, which is amazing. Yeah, it's not Kleberger. It's it's an Clean shave Adam Kleberger is not real. No, it's an imposter going by the name of Adam and Kleberger. therefore can't hurt me. From the resulting scrum then, Morgan Williams risks going blind, which is really oh. high stakes play in his own 22, and kind of throws this panicked offload to James Pritchard. Yeah, but this is like, I think this is lovely. Also, the camera angle is superb. It's great, isn't it? This like overhead. You love angle. an overhead angle, yeah. I do, I do. I just think you can see so much. Yeah. Like if you deploy an overhead angle. It was great angle for well, this because it was in theory an exit and sort of worked out as an exit. Yeah. So you got to hang it up and like Richard, right as he's about to go over the plane to touch, having been gifted these few inches by Williams, <laughs> puts through quite a nice kick that really just good. like becomes really awkward to deal with. Yeah, yeah. And like Loamanu is not known for his speed to turn. We'll no, much. no. Having been around halfway, we then have this situation where like Pritchard's chip bounces right the way to the goal line. And there's then some debate as like both teams are like, well, you carried it back. You carried it back. Is it a try? Whatever. And in the end, it is given as a scrum five, which is yeah. a huge turnaround from the Japanese mall on the line just a few minutes earlier. Yeah, that's a really important point. Also, just like Miyuchi's workplate to get back is mm. oh yeah fantastic like how quickly he gets back there because there's like a bit of a wrestle between him and morgan williams who puts in the other chip and they have a bit of a wrestle for the ball to see if one of them can ground it yeah as you say it's given that miucci grounds it which i think is the correct decision to make but miucci just brilliant to get back there from a scrum to ground yeah. that ball and make it a scrum five instead of a try yeah, there's two scrums that I think I just mixed up as being one. Yeah, there was, the, the um, Pritchard one was one where he tries to volley it and gets taken out by Loamanu. Yes. And Loamanu well, gets he pinged, like, and the ref was there like, yeah, because he was totally going to know that Pritchard was going to volley that. That's totally Loamanu's fault that he went for the tackle, not anticipating James Pritchard going for a volley on a chip kick. He's not George Furbank, mate. <laughs> yeah, so Canada ended up with scrum five. And mm. this, I think, is the start of the game going up gears. Mm. I think really it all begins with those back-to-back chips off scrums from Canada, yes. which are both interesting options that go incredibly well and are very, very exciting. So the moment the scrum fives are awarded and you go, okay, this is it. It's five all. There's 20 minutes to go now. If Canada can hold, can score here or if Japan can hold out, that is the game turning entirely. Yeah. Also, I remembered how this game finished. I didn't remember mm. for which team the thing that happened happened. Oh, really? Which is a really cool thing. I kind of thought it was the other way around for some reason. But I was expecting Japan to hold this out. Mm. And yet, th- well, there's a really the point, chaotic moment where the ball comes loose. Japan try hacking it out. It rebounds. Someone dives on it. There's a jackal turnover. And yeah. you go, great, three points. Take the three points. Oh, well, I mean, so yeah, like, but you're underestimating how long this goes on, right? Yeah. There's I three am. minutes, like three minutes between the scrum completing the ball, leaving the scrum, and that moment of the ball yes, coming loose. the picking like, and going. There are genuinely three whole minutes of the ball in play with Japan defending within two yards of their own line. Yeah, they hold Kleberger like, up. 
astounding defense. Yeah, they hold Kleberger up, and eventually it's Morgan Williams is trying to lift the ball out of the ruck, and he just managed to get to him in time, and he fumbles it forwards. And then there's like, yeah, utterly chaotic sequence as the ball goes back and forth, back and forth, and Onishi has to take it in. And, and the as he's goes, doing penalty, so, stop playing. Yeah, in desperation, Kleberger gets over it, and it's just like there's a huge cheer from the crowd as Japan turn it over. And another huge cheer as Canada turn it over again as they win that turnover penalty. Yeah. And it's, it's... just like the, the crowd and a huge crowd that really play their part, like 33,000 inside me. And it's just like absolutely wonderful seeing them just cheer for both sides doing well yeah. in such quick succession. So yeah, so Canada turn it over and it's a penalty just next to the post, you know, 15 metres out or something, 10, 15 metres yeah. out. And you're thinking this is a nailed on, absolutely nailed on, safe as anything, three points to put Calendar 8-5 ahead with 15 minutes to go. Because this is now, you know, 66 minutes. They're rolling the clock on. We're getting towards the final 10. Yeah. And like with James Pritchard kicking, it's it's nailed on, isn't it? Yeah. And then you see Morgan Williams take the ball in his hands, right? And it's that thing that Scrum Alves do, because all Scrum Alves are dickheads, current company <laughs> included. Yeah. Um where they do that thing where they're like, oh, I'm going to pretend to take a quick tap. Oh, oh, except for the bloody mad lad Morgan Williams. Who would have thought it? The, the thing moment is, you see him shape for it, you're like, don't do, do it. Do not do it. Because do not do there this. There is this thing that you sometimes realise as a scrum off where taking a quick tap, you're literally, you're taking responsibility for the entire team there. Like you're yeah. making a decision on behalf of everybody else because you think something might be on. You don't realise it at the time when you do it. I think, well, in personal kind yeah. of, uh, you know, a lot of the time you don't realise you're doing it. But unless you're the captain, you have to take a lot on your shoulders there uh, yeah. because you're overruling the captain automatically by taking that quick tap. You're automatically saying, I'm seeing something which I wholeheartedly believe is a better decision to go for than whatever the captain's going to go for. And that is yes. multiplied by 100 when you're between the posts at 5-all in a Rugby World Cup. With 15 minutes to go. With 15 minutes to go. And a, 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 kind a of, 90% goal kicker. Yeah. There's a kind of inherent arrogance to yeah. quick taps, especially in those sort of positions that only just goes up 100%. exponentially. Yeah. And it probably helps that Morgan Williams is the captain. So when he spots this, but when he's looking towards the touchline and he has the ball in his hands ready to quick tap it and you're screaming, don't do it. And you can sort of see the forwards around him like, what are you doing? Until the moment you cut to the wide shot and you realise exactly what he's spotted. The Japanese team have hurried to get back on side. You've still got, as he's doing it, there's still like a few players getting up and there's absolutely no one out on the touchline for Japan. Yes, but Canada have literally stood in touch DTH van der Merwe. And he stood in the perfect position here. When the quick tap comes in, the closest Japanese player is just next to the post, which means there's about 22 metres unmarked for DTH van der Merwe. And Morgan Williams himself drops it directly on the toe after the quick tap. And pretty much pinpoint perfect on the five metre line. It's on the money. I did not expect that to happen at all. No. Because that, that was giving me six, and I was like, "Oh, I thought the score was twelve all or whatever." Mm. And I was thinking, "Like this, this is strange." And he goes to the quick tap, and I'm like, "Right, they're going to bungle this." Unbelievable kick to put that on the money for Dan Vandermeer. I did not see that coming at all. Great Vandermeer takes drama. it five meters out, 
slides, dives in the corner. No Japanese player can get over in time. It's the try counter I've been searching for that they know could be the death brave. nail for Japan Gamble. to yeah. put them ahead. Having been behind to now score back to back in such a low scoring game is enormous. Yeah, it's such a gamble. This was the first moment where I stood up and just started screaming. Like yeah. it's an involuntary noise thing, especially not knowing it's coming. And now anyone that's going to watch it back has it ruined for them. And I apologize <laughs> for that. But, but the fact that he's multiplied that from three points to five is incredible. Yeah. James Pritchard stepping up and absolutely sinking this kick from the touchline is world class. Amazing. That's an incredible kick he puts in from yeah. the very touchline. Like maybe five meters in from the touchline. Not even that. Like it's almost on the touchline itself. Incredible kick. Incredible kick. And at that point, Japan are so under the cosh. I love also Rick Soggett has this look of like, yes, that's my boy on his face. <laughs> Rather than like delight that his team have pulled away in this incredibly tight game they've been building towards for a year. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's just like, yeah, I'm proud of you. He looks like a proud father. John Kerwin, however, rolls the dice himself and brings on Hirotoki Onizawa and Koji Tyra for yes. Imamura and Endo, who have both been playing really, really well. And I love both of those substitutions. I think they're the players that they need. Imamura's been amazing, but I think this was the right time to bring on Tyra for him. Incredibly bold, I think. Uh, Imamura has been one of the real... Actually, they've both been standouts. You know, it's your best attacking weapon and you're the guy leading the line defensively, who has also been sublime in the kicking and yeah. also, you know, with the ball in hand. It's a really bold decision, but you've got two players who are both of a very high quality who are different. Yeah. Onazawa, far faster than Endo, but does not have the same level of power yeah. that Endo has. And... Tyra, we're both big fans of. Really lively, really exciting player. Bit of a ball player. Yeah, bit of a ball player. Loves to hit an angle. He's not as tall, but he's like he packs a punch. Tyra, yeah. different player, very good player. Knows he can trust both these guys to make changes in the back line, knowing that they yeah. now need a try. Tyra's first touch of the ball is just justifies exactly what he wanted from him. He steps mm. in at first receiver in the opposition twenty-two. Skins about three men. And what I have written in my notes is, hold your depth, Loamanu, you goon. Tyra, on quick ball, makes this little break on the outside, gets to up to within five metres of the try line, and Loamanu's just stood in front of him. And it's just like, yeah. mate, you could give yourself a slide in the corner here. And yeah, I don't know if that's part of that is because he played so many positions that he's not like a technical winger like an Onazara or an Endo is. Sure, yeah. That's probably quite an easy and lazy judgment to make, but yeah... That felt like a big moment, but Tyra absolutely touched a class on the ball. There's this one shot where a Canadian is really lining him up to smash him and just beautifully drops it on the toe and stabs it five metres out from the Canadian try line from just outside the 22. And that'd be a good option if he had the time to weigh it up. But the fact he's doing it because he realises he's about to be smashed and potentially lose the ball. Yeah. Just like, utter such a class. The kind of backs equivalent of that thing Sam Warburton used to say, of like, if you're coming off the bench, you want to put 80 minutes worth of effort into. Yeah. Instead, he puts 80 minutes worth of smartness yes. and lovely touches and class into 10 minutes. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's really, really good. Jonathan Kaplan kind of ruins the day by giving that Anishi passes forward because it's an absolute pearl yeah. that he sends to Aruga who makes a line break. And you're like, oh, he's going to dive in the corner here. He's going to yeah. make a break and he's going to score the equalizing try and it's given us forward and i hate it me too me too and i don't care whether it was right or wrong 
I'm yeah. not going to discuss it because I hate it. I do not care. Yeah. Yep, we'll leave it there. We're into the last five minutes. We're only just getting started. And this is like where the drama really, really starts to build. So you have that moment of Tyra goes on the arc, goes on the outside, skips round two. He's getting up to him five meters of the line. Loamaru not quite in position with him. And Tyra has to go in himself. Loamaru does clear him out. But Japan are now a yard out from the line. They are right by the try line, and the ball is called as unplayable by Jonathan Kaplan. Kaplan just goes, well, you're not getting out there. I don't care about a quick ball or advantage for you disorganizing a defense. Who cares? We're having a scrum. I love those. <laughs> Japan's knocking on the door here was so good to watch because the points where they kept running strike moves where Onozawa, like Onozawa running like hit lines. Yes. That, that one moment where. He runs a hit line like parallel with the sticks, five meters out, mm. and Canada only get an arm tackle on him, and yeah. like he's half snaking through, and you're like, it's going to take an incredible hit to finish him off here, and Canada luckily somehow scramble and get across that, but that's such a great moment. It's half a second where you think Onazar was about to score the winner. Well, so they bring Kleberger off on seventy nine minutes because he mm. is visibly absolutely spent. Yeah, like we're jumping ahead slightly, but like. By this period here, right, Kleeberger is hanging on with just like the absolute last tendrils of his body because he has thrown absolutely everything at it. Because this like last defensive set where there's 10 minutes of them defending on their own, not well, in their own half, not all on their own line, a large chunk of it on their own line. Kleeberger is immense. Yeah, Colin Hughes, we haven't mentioned the other flanker, I think, is actually very impactful as very well. Gets solid. About. Yeah. The dual mics. Also all over the place. David Spicer, vastly underrated. Comes up uh, with a defensively, huge turnover at the end. Yeah, defensively huge here. But Kleberger in particular, you completely get why they bring him off. Because you're just like, <laughs> well, he's... I know there's one minute to go, but this is the most important minute of your World Cup. And yeah. he is spent. That is the he reason is, you have a dead. bench that you can use. Yeah. Because when your best player, or one of your best players, is at that level of energy empty, you get him off the field. Yeah, It's better to have like a 5 out of 10 player who has a full tank than an 8 out of 10 player who is has nothing left. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, Canada do put everything into that defensive set. Japan start to pile forward, and there's so many moments. You mentioned the Ozawa one. Ozawa picks another line, like straight between posts as well. After that, initial scrum and like that scrum's eaten off two minutes of the clock like that's a huge thing because it's right in the corner japan rewarded the penalty between the posts and there's a moment where captain's like what are you doing so we've got two minutes <laughs> and we're seven points behind what do you think we're doing and like one of the japanese players is trying to communicate with him and has to turn to another player to ask what the word for scrum is so then <laughs> another player comes in and says we're taking a scrum and yeah like canada get a nudge on in the scrum and this is when japan then start to Oh man, like, so they, they run this lovely move, which looks pre-organized, but then last second, Kim changes his kind of choice. He has this kind of like alternate option, hits Honazawa behind. And you wonder like, was that the right choice? Was that the right option? But Japan managed to keep hold of the ball and just keep coming and pressing for such a long time. Yeah. Until the next phase, who should pop up? But Dave goddamn Spicer. Clutch clutch from spicer it's just so chaotic here the 77 shit that goes on that turnover yes because the thing that happens after this where canada go okay let's stay calm we've got like yeah. 90 seconds left let's get downfield 
there's a great shot as Spicer comes up having won the turnover from the penalty being awarded and everyone else celebrating with him. And he's got this look of like, we're not out of the woods yet. No, no we've got a long way <laughs> to go. Because when this came in, when he got that turnover, I thought I was watching a different version of the game or I misremembered what I'd heard or I'd got the score wrong written down somewhere. Because you're thinking Canada have just won this. That's the game done. Yeah. There's 90 seconds to play now mm. by the time they've actually taken the kick. Yeah. And they're clearing it out of their own 22. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, they then set up to kick long off, oh, 10, I mean, off the line. Yeah. So, like, they get a really good drive on them all and they get a really good drive off them all by Webb, Mike Webb. So, yeah, he gets a like, really good drive off them all. And they're on the halfway line. The ball is slow. It is 79 minutes and 15 seconds. And Williams goes back to Smith in the pocket. And here's the thing. I think the decision to kick isn't necessarily a bad one. No, I, I can think so completely understand it. I quite like it as a decision. Like You're on the front foot, opposition not expecting it. Pump it long, right? The decision to hang a crossfield bomb isn't necessarily a bad one. I think it's needlessly risky when the opposition... I can see why you do it, though, because you'd have a D-line D line set up. Yeah. The decision to kick it a really long crossfield bomb that is nowhere near where your chase is going to get to, mm-hmm. I think starts to become quite questionable. Yes. But what I really have a problem with <laughs> think... is kicking a really long crossfield bomb that goes out on the full. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, the bit where it becomes bad is the bit where you're trusting Ryan Smith to do this. Yes. The man who has been absolutely killed all day. We all and know what Andy Monroe would have done. We all know what Andy Monroe would have done. He would have nailed the drop goal. 50-22, mate. All day long. Drop goal. Drop goal. goal. Fine. Three yeah, points. Nailed. But yeah, it goes out on the full and suddenly it's a 30-meter turnaround. Japan yeah. have a line out just outside the 22 and it's such a big moment. Japan play as quickly as they humanly can, yes. which means they manage to, despite the fact the ball goes out on like... <laughs> that line out's horrific. <laughs> 20 or something, yeah. They just like go <laughs> in <just> out. <laughs> Literally, but, they just chuck the ball in so fast that the referee won't be able to see whether or not it's straight. But like, there's about 12 seconds between the ball going out and the full and Japan taking the line out. Like, yeah, that's so quick. And like, Kim has to just deal with this bobbling ball because they did that with no care for the nine whatsoever. No, they just wanted no. possession because the Canadian pack are a lot taller. And so we now get to this point, right? Where the clock says 79.50, Japan are carrying it in. They run the phases. Taira hits another lovely, he does this lovely step on Spicer, which gets him up to 22. Spicer manages to scrag him, get him to ground beforehand. And Japan keep working the phases. The clock goes into the red. And as it's on like 8.15, we have the replacement for Adam Kleberger, Josh Jackson, comes in. And like, Josh Jackson is not a well known celebrated Canadian player, you know. 23 caps, went to two World Cups, good on him, but kind of like sat on the bench for most of it. Wasn't perhaps the icon that Adam Kleberger was following on from him. But that's a way to make an impact, to play one minute, step in, make two big tackles, and then win this turnover. Yeah, it's crucial. The clock is in the red. It comes back on the Canadian side to DCH van der Merwe in a bit of space. And then I, I paused and went... I've got the wrong game, haven't I? Same, yeah. I was like, what's... what's... It's all gone to script so far, 
But I've got the wrong game. I thought this ended in a draw, or at least ending on a kick to win it, you know? DTH then, after my pause, kicks the ball, and I go... Holy fuck, he's going to miss touch, isn't he? He's gonna miss this touch, is going to yeah. be. I was. I had my pen on my paper on the dick of the I, day section, writing his name down. He kicked the ball into touch. I was screaming for him to just put it out because I was yeah. like, I don't. Because I again, I had the same thing. I was like, is he going to miss touch? Is he going to some? Is he going to kick this ball? Long? Was in the air for about three hours in my head. Yeah, same. That went so slowly, but it went into touch. Like I wrote postcards in the time that he was. That ball was in the air. Look, my knowledge of the rugby rules isn't quite perfect, but mm. I thought that if you kicked the ball out and it crossed the plane of touch past the 80th minute, that was the end of the game. Yeah. So this is like a really interesting thing. I <laughs> didn't know this place. happened. So the ball goes out of play. The touch just stands in position where it is, right? The time as the ball crossed the plane of touch is 80 minutes and 21 seconds, Right. The thing sets, the referee's like, okay, there's the mark, whatever. And then, right, the Japanese players all set for the lineup. The Canadian players come up for the lineup and are like, is that not time? Is that not the end of the game? Is it not over? And Jonathan Kaplan, the referee, says in his earpiece to the TMO, can I have a time check, please, Joel? And what we haven't mentioned, right, the last two times in the game where he's gone up to the TMO, where he's gone to check something, the communications haven't worked perfectly. Yes. The thing hasn't gone through. It's been there's been so, such delays in yeah, so there's an error in communication. So as he's asking that, is time up? Are we okay to blow full time? Japan throw the ball into the lineout because they clearly realise what's going on. Mate, that's the first time all game Japan have wanted a lineout. They look yeah. so eager, like yes, let's have a lineout, lads. When the rest of the game's like, oh shit, we've got to do that thing with throw the ball in. So Japan throw it in really quickly. And by the time the ball goes in, Claplin clearly goes, okay, it doesn't matter if time wasn't in, this is now the last play, even if it was up there, which it was. Like, time should have been over and Kansas should have won this game 12-5. They did win this game. They did what they needed to to win this game. Yeah. They got to the 80th minute and kicked it into touch 12-5 up. And yet, because of a breakdown... And yet we saw the alternate timeline. because Because of a breakdown in communication with the TMO, time is not called as up. Yeah. Imagine if this happened to the Springboks nowadays. Yeah, but in fairness, they would have a right to be upset about oh, this. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. However, like because Japan are so eager to just get the ball in and get it out, because you can see that like visible haste sets in once you can hear the match from the referee, like the players start sprinting into position. They then lob the ball straight in, and with such haste, that they just don't get anyone in the air. No. And so... Like, you've still got... Thompson's still getting off the ground as Mike James is, like, all the way up in his jump. He steals it, slaps it back, except it's so loose. Like, because no one is in position properly, Williams isn't set properly into the nine position, and one of the Japanese players, I'm not quite sure who it is. It's Kim. Is it Kim? Oh, Kim brilliant. bloody rapid onto that. Like Dives at it. He gathers it somehow. And Japan now have the ball, and they've made a further like five, ten meters off where the lineout was. Yeah, meaning they're now on the, the twenty-two. Yeah, it's class by Kim to mop that yeah. up first and foremost. And they go for a little pick and go to get him back on his feet, and they get penalty. And Kim is like, "Let's not hang around, lads. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go." And taps the fucker so fast, like basically before whistles hit mouth. He yeah, is so quick to tap that. He is so full of energy here. But like then from almost the phase afterwards, Canada almost turn it over again. 
Mm. If Jackson again like gets over the ball and manages to knock it loose, but Tayera comes in and picks it up from the breakdown. And like Japan are playing with such pace, such pace, such pace, and all the drama in the world you think is there until a very questionable decision comes in after Tayera takes it in. Japan reload and go the other way. And the name Sergio Parise comes to mind here. Yes. Yeah. So Harim <laughs> Kiri, the six who has been smashing everyone in the fly half channel, goes, well, it doesn't look that difficult, does it? <laughs> and yeah, stands in at first receiver on the blind side and he shapes to drop the ball onto his boot. And I pause and go, have I got the wrong game here? <laughs> Is he about to kick this out? And he puts in a chip kick and... There's no it's penalty not, advantage. No penalty advantage. Extremely bold call, especially for a six. Talk about taking responsibility for the entire team and your captain <laughs> yes. and your fly half and everybody here, right? He puts in this chip kick and it's not a bad one, but it's not a particularly good one either because yeah. the trajectory is very much towards the dead ball line. And so you think, right, okay, so this is going to go into touch. This is, this is the last play. There is no yeah. way that this could possibly end. If Canada ground the ball, that's full time because... Canada have two or three players who are in front, you know, in a more advantageous position to get to the ball yeah. than the Japanese. Well, you've got two Japanese players chasing. You've got Goa Ruga and you have Taira chasing because you've just had Onzal was just carried in the midfield a moment ago and it's his wing. Yeah. You have Mensa Koka who was able to outpace Taira quite easily. And then you also have turning back good old Dave Spicer who's just like yeah. a big block in midfield so no one can get past him. And then you have Morgan Williams chasing back from in the backfield. He's elsewhere sweeping. So he's in the kind of traditional scamaf role. So he's able to track across as the other two are coming dead back. Mentecoco is far quicker than either Japanese players chasing. Mm-hmm. And Spicer is big. He's just a bigger lad than either of them and they can't get around him yeah. in combination with being another Canadian player around him. So the ball lands in the dead ball line. It bounces up twice. And on the second bounce, as it's about to go dead, Morgan Williams, in desperation, sees that Aruga is now getting close. He is now yeah. close enough. That He's made a hell of an effort. Favors, man. Yeah. He's like worked his way around Spicer, managed to get there, and he's diving with all he's got for this ball. And so Williams, in a moment of panic, reaches for the ball, puts his two hands up, and just with both hands, like Full volleyball style, Full stretch, bats it over the dead ball line. Like, just chucks it over it. Anything to get it off the pitch. Anything to get it off the pitch. And then you go, oh, this isn't the last play. This can carry on. And Kaplan blows his whistle, goes to the TMO. Whole thing aided, weirdly, by the fact that Williams smashes in the advertising hoardings and really hurts himself. Yes, yes. So he's down for quite a while. Mm. And in that time, the referee, Kaplan, steps in and goes, okay, I'm going to check with the TMO just what happened there. And everyone's just paying attention to... Yeah. Like, you have... Tayera goes in to help Williams. You have, like, all the Canadian players focusing on him, make sure he's okay. And so he goes, okay, I'm just going to check with the TMO what happened there, because none of us are quite sure. The touches didn't quite see. They go upstairs, and then we have the communication problems again, where they spend ages waiting to hear from them. You have Colin Hughes, the flanker for Canada, leans in, puts an ear in right next to the referee to try and hear what's coming in, but he can't hear it either, because the lines of the TMO are down. Yeah, and eventually it does get through to Kaplan that Morgan Williams deliberately batted the ball into touch, which, let's face it, is like a yellow card offence. It's a clear yellow card. 
Um, I've got no idea how it isn't a yellow card. Yeah, because he injures himself on the advertising hoardings. That's how. Yeah. I can understand you not giving it as a penalty try. I don't yeah, know how you can give it. Try. I don't know how you can not give it as a yellow card. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's a penalty is the exact lifeline that Japan needed because now they yes. have a tap five meters. Out. I say they have a tap with Kim at nine. They're only ever having a tap. This is the third moment of outrageous luck they've received. Yes, <laughs> from like seventy-seven minutes onwards. Yeah, yeah. And they go for the tap, and there's such drama here. Like, holy shit. Them going to set up that midfield more off this tap, this is all or nothing. They're sticking everybody in here. They stick Robins in that mall. They put all their backs into that mall. And they basically have, like, three or four men on their feet, and that's it. Everybody else is in the mall. Five metres out trying to drive this over. Really impressive thing. So Jackson, again, to mention him once more, manages to wheel this mall really nicely so that the... Nowadays, I think a lot of referees would give it as unplayable very quickly mm. because when the mall collapses, he's lying on the wrong side because of the way he's meant to maneuver his body around. And so when that comes down and the mall does come down, like it inches out from the try line, just, just short. Yeah. The ball is playable. And if you just give it 20 seconds, like the length you give a ruck, it will come out, right? And it'll sure. be there for Kim to play. But a lot of referees would just blow that instantly nowadays as it's over. And I was half expecting that to happen again in that, like, I've got the wrong game. <laughs> situation but japan do manage to rest at the back they go for a couple pick and goes in towards the post and kim starts to dig right as the other japanese players flash blind which is a very familiar thing in last minutes of japanese games in world cups yeah and the way that they've tied the entire canadian team into this small area because Mm. japan haven't played this kind of a a move they haven't pulled this kind of thing out the bag all game Canada mm. probably know what to expect is, yeah, they'll pick and go, then they'll think of a plan and we'll just mark that then. Yeah. And so as Japan, they flash open side, Harry McKeary works round. You have a couple of the backs work round. I think it's on Ishii works round. And they're all working. So Morgan Williams like shits himself and like jumps up to try and like jumpstart a press on that side. Yeah. You have two of the forwards that are previously in the mall get up and move on that side. And it leaves Canada short on the blind side. And yet Japan are not quite there yet Mm. because they have only two men flashing back round against this Canadian team who like, there are numbers there, but they're all incredibly narrow because they've been committed to that mall. And so the wide touchline itself isn't quite marked. Yeah. And it's like a a miniaturization of that thing in sevens where you stop, check and let the defense come up at you. That happens in a microsecond for Kim here. As that ball spurts out, he stops for a moment and lets everything swarm around him, which is so not what I would have done in that situation. (laughs) It works. Well, that's the thing, right? Because you just had to say it was Thompson that flashes open side, sorry. Thompson works in on the open side and as does Onishi and Bryce Robbins. And you're thinking that's the way it's going. You know, the two Mm. key decision makers and the best ball playing play in their pack have all worked in field. That's the way they're going. That's the, what they're looking for. They're looking to hit as quickly in between the posts, knowing they need the conversion. Instead, as that comes up, right, there's only one Canadian player who can fly up, which is Mentacoka. He like flies out a line on that blind side, right as Kim floods the pass through to Makiri. Yes. And Makiri, for all the things we've said about him, I did not realise soft hands was one of the... <laughs> Pluses against his name, but they're actually Ryan this... Smith's hands. Yeah, that's true. That's true. This all happens so fast. Yeah, Kim 
McCary offload Tyra on the outside. Only just opposed, but with space to run in and potentially dive in. He's, what, three metres out? Like, brilliant, superb tackle attempt by Mike Pike, who is coming from so far across. He made such a hell of an effort to get there. And he just does, like, the technical, like, wraps his ankles and tries to, like, yank him backwards. You know the sort, where you're, like, you're diving with someone, trying to use your momentum to pull them away from their momentum. And so he's just trying to, like, try and pull him backwards over the line rather than trying to, like, smash and prevent him getting to the Mm. line. But Tyra wraps the ball up under both arms, just, like, races himself for the impact and begins to dive right as Pike is going to try and stop him using his own momentum. Yeah. And luckily, Tyra's momentum is only just enough that he squeezes into the corner four metres from the touchline and scores a try. Yeah. The Japanese players are elated. The coaches are still too tense to watch. Yeah. Kim goes absolutely ballistic at this stage. And there's a handful, like Miyuchi is so straight faced. Like, no, mm. this means nothing yet. And Anishi in particular is like, well, no, you cannot celebrate because I have to, I've been given such a difficult yeah. kicker. You do realize this. Kerwin on the sideline, just his arms folded and looks still like faced with death. But yeah. the other two assistants who are clearly Japanese natives mm. are <laughs> like both do like a yes. And they kind of clap or like approvingly like, yes, that is correct. We've done that well. But yeah, Tayer is delighted. The other players are delighted. Apart from Anishi, who's like, Anishi's well, no pressure. himself, mate. Thanks, <laughs> he did lads. not want this. He would rather they just lost than had this on his shoulders. Bloody My hell, what a difficult thing kick this is. About this is the amount of time Anishi spends lining this up. Because it's clearly every kick he's ever taken in his life, he's a little bit imagined it was this when he was a kid. Yeah, you know? yeah. We're in a World Cup. It's the last play. If I kick this, we're no longer losing. Yeah. This is the kick for the get to decide the game. And like, you can point to like Johnny Sexton's winning drop goal in Paris a few years ago. Mm. You can, you know, point to Andre Pollard's like winning kicks or like even like Kira Bevan's winning kick against Scotland last year, right? You can point to any of those and, d- and say like, oh, so calm under pressure. They've clearly visualised they're in the back garden, you know, with the, either kicking coach or their granddad who's took them down the, the rugby club or whatever. You know, there's always something mm. like that that comes up, right? Not the case at all for Anishi here. No. He's just there like, oh shit, I'm in the biggest game of my life in the World Cup. Got fucking thousands of, 33,000 people watching me here. I'm absolutely bricking it. I'm so aware of what I'm doing right now. But I think his entire kicking routine, I think there are two options for how this kick goes, right? Mm. One is like he completely gets the yips and he like sends it to the corner flag. Where yeah. He compl- barely gets it off the ground or like he just completely mishits it. Or he drills it perfectly. Like, he's clearly so aware. You can see on his face, like, he's quite an animated guy. You can see on his face just how nervous he is. Yeah. But, like, Pressure not in a way made worried, in a way that he is hyper-focused. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing in his mind other than this, and nothing can yeah. possibly distract him. Like, all the booing in the world, all the things being thrown at him in the world wouldn't take him off this. this As he starts his run, all of the Canadians are sprinting for this, as they would. Yeah. You know, and... It's a good sprint. It's a good bit of pressure yeah. they put on there. Extremely close. Anishi clearly does not notice for a man who is so aware of the pressure. He's got a look of like worry on his face. Yeah, I just don't, I don't think there's anything else in the world, right? And he has spent hundreds of hours training, practicing this exact skill, knowing yeah. that it comes down to a moment like this. And with mm. that level of focus, I don't think there's a chance 
that he doesn't absolutely hit it, the sweetest he's ever hit it in his life. What an unbelievable kick. What an unbelievable kick. Four metres from the touchline. And perfect. Absolutely perfect. The strike, the contact is perfect. And it comes up straight down the middle, despite, as you say, the huge amount of pressure the entire Canadian team are putting on him. All of them lined up directly opposite him within like five metres. Arms in the air, flailing, shouting, screaming, charging. The crowd as loud as they'll ever be. And he absolutely drills it. Like, it's, it is the sweetest strike he will ever do in his life, yeah. coming in the biggest kick of his That's career. That's it. That's it. Japan celebrate the draw, and so they should. Like, they've mm. dug that out in the last five minutes and relied on a lad to put in the best kick of his life, which he does. How yeah. brilliant is that as a moment in the Rugby World Cup? That is that is what the World Cup's all about. It's incredible. It's about players who have trained their entire lives for this and worked for this and dreamt of this yeah. pulling that off in moments that don't come down to the final it's not about the kind of high performance programs and money that's been invested in it's about these tier two players yeah. and them getting the chance to move and like japan have now managed to progress and it's largely thanks to moments like that it's thanks to anishi as i say yeah. he's paved the way him and his his, his boys and look we're here now, and 12 all is not a pretty scoreline, but let's quickly just celebrate Japan here, because this is yeah. their last game in this World Cup. So I would like to formally open the Japanese leaving party as we bring down the curtain on the game, because I love this Japanese team. I love basically any Japanese team that go to a Rugby World Cup, and there's so many fantastic players that I didn't know that I now know, and Anishi is the heart of that. I love that player. Yeah. I would happily watch him play another 10 World Cups. I'd like to welcome you to the Japanese leaving party. Thank you. The other big player for me, Takaro Miyuchi. What a captain. We've spoken about it during that game, but great ball carrier, great hitter, leader of everything. Like, just such a great example. You know, Mm. I've just grown to absolutely love his influence on this team. Yeah. Well, you've got, so before this World Cup, John Kerwin said that Endo could go on to become one of the best wingers in the world. And we sort of flashes of that. We saw flashes yeah. of like the sheer devastating talent that he has. Onishi was such a treat. Imamura, I am a huge fan of. Yeah, he's, he's so one of those good. like so good, effortlessly calm centers that Japan produces. You know, like you mentioned Nakamura earlier, like Nakano, who's going to play in this year's World Cup, who's kind of a a fresher cap, I suppose. Those kind of players just kind of paved the way for a lot of those. Yeah, go then Aruga. The second row combination. Oh, Thompson God. Ono. That's one cover Luke Thompson. He's just incredible. I, I would actually argue he might be Japan's best player in this World Cup, which I didn't expect yeah. at all. I think I'd um, say so. Yeah. I'd agree with that. He's been amazing in every game. We've not really spoken about how good he was in this game, but I don't I think that's probably good for the listeners. I think we should probably keep yes. it that way. But he was brilliant. Also, right, you know the saying all good things come in threes? Yes. So Chuan Kim is thirty nine years old and he has two caps. Jamie Joseph, it is not too late to give him his third cap. You should just do it. I know he's probably not played rugby in 15 years, but that's fine by me. Give him his third cap, you coward. He's absolutely class. Do you want to know something about Kim? Yeah, go on then. Chulwon Kim is seven months older than Jonathan Sexton. There we go. I mean, His last cap was 16 years ago. That's mental. Vip Boy's younger than Johnny Sexton. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> hilarious is that oh man yeah i want kim back i want him back me too me too anyway anything else uh, closing statements on japan no i mean i just think it's kind of a not quite a degree 2011 it's 2011 you can see the foundations being built for what goes mm. on to come here you can see the foundations being built for those foundations 
Yeah. And they're yeah. a really entertaining team to watch. I really enjoyed watching them. There's so many players in here that you look at and go, they've got such potential. And it's so good that even if they don't fulfill the potential, they pave the way for players that have been able to fulfill that yeah. potential. And like, this is the highlight in the following World Cup of Imamura's career. And, you know, Goagura doesn't get much chance to do much. And Yoshida and like plenty of those other players, right? Mm. But, I mean, Luke Thompson does, but they asked Hiroshi Ono. But they just open a door that allows so many others to step up. And yeah. I absolutely loved watching them it was a delight and i was so glad to do it and to do so in this game which i think is one of the best games of the podcast it'll come up when we do the wrap-up at the end of the best games of this world cup yeah yeah i thought a, a wonderful wonderful thing all for japan forza azuri by which i mean nihon yeah i think that is a beautiful sentiment to close japan on thank you and sayonara oh so, oh, I'm actually you... Dick of the Day then. Yeah. Let's get through it. We've been talking about this for fucking ages. Dick of the Day, I'll start with. So, Ryan Smith did both throw that pass into touch and kick that ball out on the fall at the end, which is quite Dick of the Day ish. However, my Dick of the Day is obviously Jonathan Kaplan because he is A, racist, and B, gave that forward pass and pinged Thingy for not feeding when he, the scrum was moving. Yoshida absolutely fair enough so full disclosure i had a dick of the day written down and i don't have that notebook with me right now and i have forgotten who i was going to give it to everything else you know managed to get a pretty decent copy of but forgot dick of the day forgot to scroll if you retrospectively Um, overall the dick of the day that you give now then we'll i won't i won't this is canon this is canon okay look here's the thing right ryan smith makes the most dick of the day contributions and the biggest dick of the day contributions to the game yeah however whose fault is that is it his or is it Makiri's? That's true. Makiri then pops up and does that stupid kick. Very That's almost true. cost Japan the game. But also kind of wins it. Weird but that, also kind of wins it for them. <laughs> so my dick of the day is Harry Makiri. Love it. Japanese he was fighter. being a dick all day. Yeah, he was. And look, he's now got like 28 limbs and <laughs> 40 ribs. And only so many of them Give can them be back. in fast food restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Just give them back. Stop yeah. farming Ryan Smith's limbs. Entirely fair enough call. Man of the match was so difficult to pick. I think Aruga was really, really good, especially in the first half. Yes. But I feel like I have to decide it more on the second half. Oh, man. Miyuchi was outstanding all game. I've spoken about him a lot. i say not spoken about much, but Luke Thompson was brilliant. Anishi is a player that I will just happily obsess mm. over loads. Rod Snow was brilliant. Again, not, someone yes. not spoken about that much, but every single game has been fantastic. I think because of what we're saying about it being the most big moments in the game, sometimes talking about the game on this podcast form does change your man of the match perception because yeah. you realise in the moment, like, actually, no, he was the most impactful player. Adam Kleberger. Oh, okay. I love it. I love it. I like that. I like that a lot. Came up um, with so many big moments and they wouldn't have hung on without him. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm glad you went first because I had kind of a man of the match for either side and mm. I was kind of torn on both of them. And I was basically going to, because I think this game was so level, pick based on who you didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Team. Oh, shit, Morgan Williams was amazing as well. I should mention him. So my man of the match for Canada would have been Morgan Williams with yeah. Kleberger a close second. I think Morgan Williams, yeah, was absolutely fantastic again. Class. Dictated the pace, really superb for just like keeping Canada ticking, keeping them in control of the game for as much as they were. Like, I think there's more of the game with Canada on top than Japan are. But equally, Japanese defence is better for more than Canadians. Is, so it sure. all levels out. But it's kind of on that basis that I'm going to give my 
man of the match. And I wish there was one episode of the 2011 series where I gave a joint man of the match to like, the, I think Australia brought Drew Mitchell off at half time and brought Adam Ashley Cooper on for him. Oh, yeah, and that was a cowardly move. Yeah, I'm not doing that. But if I could, it would work. My man of the match is Yuta Imamura. I thought you'd go down that route. Yeah. I thought defensively, absolutely sublime, tactically excellent, and added a real threat and attack. If you can then allow me to have the extra 10 meters, 10% of it going to Koji Tayera, who comes on for him for the last 10 minutes, then that makes it like absolutely nailed on dead set. Because Tayera makes a huge impact when he comes on for who I thought was already the best player on the pitch. I love Um, it when somebody is basically the best player on the pitch and they're correct to be substituted. I love games like that. Because it was. It was the right decision, and it was an inspired yeah. decision. I never would have done it. Yeah. I never would have brought a best player off. Kudos, in John Kerwin. In such a position. Kudos. Yeah. He's said since he was never a very good coach, but like that is a ballsy coach only a very good coach very makes. Very bold. Very bold. Good on him. Well done, John Kerwin. Well deserved so, yeah, result there. You take him for his defensive prowess, and but also Rick's his all-round it. game for me. Yeah. Man of the match. Love it. Spent it for Japan. I have loved that game and I've really enjoyed talking about it. Yes, likewise, likewise. It's gone. This is probably the longest episode of the podcast other than the 87 final, but you know what? It is what it is. This is, yeah, but this has been maybe my favourite game of the tournament so far. Same. I've greatly enjoyed it. All that remains to say now is thank you very much for joining me. Likewise, uh, thank well, you. Thank you to the people at home. You can say thank you if you choose, but I don't, I'm not going to make you. Thank you to Carly Ray, who I'm seeing on the day this goes out. Yes, well, of course, this game was between, yeah, this game was between Carly Ray and Jepsen. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's a likelihood that if you're listening to this, I am seeing Carly Ray at this very moment. Outstanding. And thank you to everyone that made it possible for next week's episode to be us talking about Portugal versus Romania. Excellent. Which is weirdly fitting to say that's what we've been doing all week is looking at Portugal and Romania. Yes, indeed. We'll say we're then covering them on the podcast we'll see you then for that thank you everybody i hope you enjoy i hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording it we'll see you then good night good night hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing i love that luxury quality within reach go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com style